0: Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast.
1: Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own.
3: You are listening to the Quantum League Podcast. This is episode 80. Deliver us from evil.
0: Shut Shut it down!
4: What are you crazy? You alright, Jimmy? Yeah, I'm fine, I'm sorry. Everybody alright? (laughs) <laughs> when I tell you to stay away from the forklift, you're not ready to drive it yet! Right?
5: What? Is that
4: you? Of course it's me. Did you hit your head? No. No, I... No, I, I didn't... Jimmy. Jimmy. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm back! I'm back, Frank! <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Quantum leaping is a lonesome business. Just when you start to feel comfortable somewhere to fit in, you're gone. But today, I found myself back with people I knew and cared about. People who cared about me. Sam, this is amazing. In over 80 leaps, you've never leaped to the same place more than once until now. Oh, yeah, there's Jimmy. That's really nice. This is great. Yeah, well, Ziggy doesn't think so. As a matter of fact, she's freaked out by the whole thing. She's in maximum overload. I've even had Dr. Beeks talking to her, but it's not helping. Ziggy, she's in a total state of confusion. Confusion about what? Well, she's insisting that history's changing. So, uh, whatever you're doing, you better stop. Because originally, Ziggy said Connie and Frankie lived happily ever after. Uh, oh. Jimmy got his own place. Corey went on to Stanford. Everything fine. Right, so what's changing? Everything. Now, Connie and Frankie break up. Um, and, and Corey, uh, we can't trace anything that happens to him. Jimmy, what, what about Jimmy? Well... Jimmy blamed himself for the breakup and three weeks after the divorce he was institutionalized he he never got out Frank needs you Connie he needs you now more than ever and so does Corey
1: Jimmy did Frank put you up to this
4: no no it's just that if you don't do something fast you're gonna lose him
1: listen to me Jimmy Frank has a lot of growing up to do he's jealous because i pay attention to you this is your time jimmy i'm not gonna let his ego get in your way
4: i just want the two of you to be happy that's all too late no it isn't no no
1: who are you
5: who are you
4: i mean what's your name leah yeah mm-hmm. where did you come from
1: the
4: future where i mean when
6: uh well
1: it's... well 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 so where did this Dudley morsel come from not, not now
4: uh, are, are, you, are you talking to a hologram <sighs> you're talking to a hologram are not you you are a Time traveler, too. Uh,
1: Two? What does he mean, two? Sam Beckett, I'd like you to meet my partner, Zoe. Zoe?
4: Uh, Uh, Ziggy is just as shocked as you are about all of this. He's fine enough. The best she can figure is that when the two of you touched it, set up some kind of magnetic uh, convergence or something so that that you um, could see each other for who you really are. He says that something happened Um, when we touched.
6: Oh, I know. I felt it, too. (laughs)
4: No wonder I've been getting weird data from Ziggy. She's been sensing
1: her. Sam, it, I'm not Connie, and you're not Jimmy. Make love to me,
4: Sam. Connie? Jimmy? Oh, no. Oh, no, Frank.
7: Where is everybody?
4: Here, get dressed. Hurry. All right. um. Hello? Oh, my God. If find just like this, Lori he'll leave Connie for sure. Right after he strangles me. Okay, we'll tell him that we were talking, right? You decided to... Donnie! What are you doing? Get your...
5: What are you...
7: Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Is this the good podcast or the evil podcast? My name is Christopher D. Philippus.
8: My name's Alison Pregler. <laughs> and I'm evil Matt Dale. I'm British. I don't know why I needed to say I'm evil. Of course I'm evil. I'm British. I must be evil.
7: <laughs> well, yeah, why, why wasn't Alia British? Well, Zoe was.
9: Well, I don't know. Well, why wasn't Zoe American when Aaliyah was American? I don't know. <laughs> well,
7: if you guys can't tell, we're talking about the Season 5 episode, Delivers from Evil. And, um, uh, I, guys, I have so much to say about this episode. Oh, I have me too. <laughs> such mixed feelings. But before we get started, I just want to let everybody out there listening know that um, in honor of deliver us from evil. This podcast will also serve as a LaMotta family reunion of sorts. We will be re-airing our interviews with John DiAquino who played Frank, Laura Harrington who played Connie,
6: <laughs> my grandmother's
9: platter. My grandmother's platter.
7: And uh, Jimmy himself, Brad Silverman. We have interviewed all the Lamontas except for Corey at some point or another over the history of this podcast. And we're going to make sure that you guys know about it. Mm. So guys, so much to come. This is going to be one yeah. packed episode, but, um, why don't we just start where we always do first impressions, Allison, give us your first impressions of deliver us from evil. Evil. <laughs> uh, what a great concept. I think this is
9: a, this is a great start to the, the evil leaper arc uh, of sorts. And, um, it took me a little bit to get into it, to be honest, like the concept at all. It's not that it's bad. It's just it's so different from what Quantum Leap has done before. Um, but I think that's a good thing. So overall, very positive review. Thoughts?
7: <laughs> okay. Matt, how about you?
8: Yeah, I, I love this episode. And Chris, if you've got mixed feelings about it, um, 50% of this episode is going to be us arguing. I know this, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with Alison that this is, this is very different to what's come before. And it, it does take a little bit to get your head around it. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm an unabashed fan of this and the two follow ups. I, I'm going to struggle not to just get very overly excitable over the next, uh, couple of hours.
7: All right. Well, I mean, that's hmm. it's funny because <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Well,
7: no, the reason I laugh and just hearing the enthusiasm from both you guys, I had trouble figuring out what I thought of this episode 25, 30 years ago when I first saw it on NBC. I was scratching my head saying, is this a good thing for Quantum Leap? Is this a bad thing for Quantum Leap? And now, like decades later, I'm still saying, is this a good thing for Quantum Leap? I have no idea what to make of this premise. I don't know if I like it. I don't know if I dislike it. And I mean, we might as well just go to the first talking point that I put on. Is this an intriguing addition to the lore of Quantum Leap or the dumbest gimmick of season five? I still don't know. (laughs) The answer is yes, question mark to
8: both. I, <laughs> I don't, don't think it's done, Chris. Possibly before we get on to that, uh, maybe this this is the same topic. But you mentioned about your first experience watching this. Now, this this is something that neither Alison nor I can relate to. But you'd had, from what I can tell, a season of or half a season so far of constant promotions and adverts about the evil leapers coming. This was like quite heavily promoted back in the day, right? Whereas for for me, watching this on the BBC the twist two-thirds of the way through shocked the hell out of me. So I, I think, at least for that first viewing, you and I had very different experiences. And I imagine Alison went in knowing what was going to happen already. Yeah, um, I knew. But I genuinely... Yeah. yeah, it took me by surprise. So, Those
9: commercials were weird, too, weren't they? It was like there was yeah. another actress that wasn't <laughs> Renee Coleman, just in a silhouette with evil eyes. Like, she evil looks at the eyes. camera and... and bling!
4: She's from the future. She can assume any form, and she's evil. Now she's finally here.
6: me,
4: and Sam's in too deep. Tell
1: me that you don't want me to stop. She's
7: evil. The Evil Leaper lands. Quantum Leap. NBC Tuesday.
9: The Evil Leaper is coming. <laughs>
7: yeah. I, I honestly, Matt, I do not remember the hype that okay. that was going around about this. It's not to say that I didn't see it. I
8: just wonder if that affected it at all, if it's hyped up and then you're like, um, OK, you
7: know, I'm guessing that it might have. I think at this point um, I had started to um, really see some of the scenes that were showing in season five and just how different the show was becoming. And
8: <laughs> I, I What just seems you talking about. Chris? It's been perfect <laughs> So far, we haven't got to Blood Moon yet, mate. This, this has been a really good season. <laughs>
7: I, I mean, I guess just just sort of the hard left turn it's taken into just complete sci fi. And it really was, um, if, if the evil leaper thing was being promoted, I was probably seeing it somewhere off in the background. I would occasionally, because Mm -hmm. at, at the time this was on, I was working at the NBC affiliate in the town where I went to college. So they would always have the NBC station on up, you know, in the corner of the room somewhere when you were in the newsroom. And I have a lot of memories of looking up and seeing promos for quantum leap while I was working. And, um, I had probably seen it in that kind of context somewhere. So maybe I saw it, maybe I was sort of cognizant of it, but it was sort of like back burner stuff because I was crash editing a package for the, the eight o'clock show or whatever, you know? So I can't say if it did or if it didn't influence the way I felt about it. I just know that I still don't know how I feel about it. It's weird. I agree with your points, uh, Chris.
9: Um not uh not entirely but I do agree mostly with what you're saying. I don't think it's a dumb concept, but it is one that I'm very mixed on. And like um I know that <laughs> um people involved with the show thought it was dumb. <laughs> There's been interviews um <laughs> Dean Stockwell, John DiAkinno, I think both of them said that they thought it was stupid. <laughs> yeah. Um I like the concept. I just think it's very different. You have to be in the mood for it because it's a different kind of quantum leap. It's a lot darker than we're used to. Yeah, that's
8: true. It, th- and th- this is a a trope that's been done to death on TV. It's like a, the the evil twin kind of plot line. I just love knowing they were inspired by by a Car from
2: Knight
9: Rider. <laughs> by
8: Knight Rider, yes, because <laughs> that's the ultimate <laughs> evil twin story: is the evil Car. <laughs> But that is, I th- I think they did a really good job with it. So to to me, yes, it's a gimmick in that it is a very well-known and overused trope, but it's one that's done extremely well. So yeah, uh, for me, 100%, great addition to the lore, not a dumb gimmick at all. But I, I get where you're coming from, but you're wrong.
9: <laughs> <laughs> I wish that they'd been able to do more with it. I think one mm. of the things that's that's really a bummer is that There's so much that we really don't know about the Evil Leapers. It's very unexplained. There's other things that they could have done with it, I think, if they would had another season and been able to work with the concept more. The three episodes that we have, uh, everything is very rushed through because you're trying to fit in so many concepts in just a short amount of time. So like this one, the evil leaper stuff doesn't start till halfway through the episode. You nice. don't like either, all of it's the intrigue, like why are things changing when Sam's not doing anything? What's going on here? And I do think it, that hurts it a little bit. And that once you know the twist, like it can be a little bit slow uh, the beginning of the episode. But you have all of that, and then you have to cram in the last two acts, all of the evil leaper stuff. And then when you get to uh, the next two episodes, um, y- you have like all of these high concept things going on alongside the leap that Sam's got to work with there too. And so you just feel like it's just a mile a minute.
7: Yeah. And I wonder if we can take this one just on its own merits with trying to impose some kind of limit on what we learn additionally in Return and Revenge. Because um, when we had first seen this, we didn't know where they were going to take this story. So I I just want to keep it um, the discussion, if you guys don't mind, as much as we can, because I know we're inevitably going to, to stray into other stuff. But yeah. just within the context of how it's presented in this episode, I think there are definite strengths and definite weaknesses. And if if you guys don't mind, can I just lay out one of the things that I see as one of the weaknesses? Um, why do we have the needless personality parallels? Why do we have like this dark, like the mirror image? Uh, you know, it, it works for the, the show, I guess, but... I think it would have been more interesting to have something more compelling than, like, an evil cartoon reflection of Project Quantum Leap. I mean, you have Zoe, who is just like Al, outrageously dressed, oversexed.
8: Mm-hmm. Being a hologram makes you horny. Just <laughs> just <laughs> <what> <laughs> <it> does, <laughs> the ability to go anywhere and see anyone while they're getting changed has to, has to do something to you. I think the only non-horny hologram we saw was Gushy, and that's, like
9: you know that's up for debate even when <laughs> sam was a hologram <laughs> horny well, a pound of butter's all it takes
8: i got me a dairy farm that i stop that but chris isn't, isn't this about and again you you said let's let's park future episodes but this this episode suffers from killing time syndrome and there's there's a a regular leap that's really good and a high concept plotline going on as well and it's smushed into 45 minutes yeah to do that smushing You've got to take some shortcuts. If they'd have done more with Zoe and Aaliyah than make them cartoon opposites, which I completely agree with you, they are, it would have taken far more than the 45 minutes to play out. They would have needed to have made that a two-parter in itself. I just think it's a shortcut and I'm fine with it.
9: Yeah, I don't think they needed to be, um, uh, Zoe in particular, uh, very similar to Al in the way that she acts. And I think in, in the other episodes, um, it wasn't as much that. I think like the way that they played it, uh, Renee Coleman and Caroline Seymour, I think, uh, helped to differentiate it. I, th- the thing that's interesting to me is that they're not like, they're the same but opposite is kind of what's going on here. They seem to allude to in the episode uh, that Zoe and Aaliyah are being held hostage in some way. That they're not doing this because they want to. Like they're talking about how they like clawed their way out of hell to land these simple assignments. We
2: clawed our way out of hell to land simple assignments like homewrecking and adultery. Don't listen to her. You
9: don't want to go back to the horror that we've you lived You've got to listen before. to me.
6: Kill all those people again
9: they don't want to go back to like murdering people and doing more horrible things um, which opens up all sorts of questions about what's going on there but like I don't know I guess that's kind of the point like if Sam and Al had been in this position where would they be the twisted mirror of themselves
7: if you will mm. I mean I suppose and that's where they really fudge a lot with this episode it's just they they just allude to something that's so intriguing Yet, we don't get any kind of context aside from the way they get pulled out of the leap at the end i'm you know, and we'll get to the ending, but it was it was significantly like you said allison, significantly different in its paradigm um they were not doing it because they couldn't find their way home. they were not doing it because they wanted to do it they were they were being compelled hmm. to do these things.
9: Well, Aaliyah wanted to go home. She thought that this would be the way for her to get home if she finally got like one assignment, one last assignment done. This
1: could be the one that gets you home. Home, Aaliyah. Shoot him. What if he's telling the truth? What if I kill him and then I kill myself and then I can't go
7: home? Which is the one that's finally going to get her home. Yeah, but okay, so that makes me wonder, like, so how did she said she was part of an experiment. So how did she get involved in the first place? I don't think it's I don't think this is like a literal hell situation.
9: If if we're going into that the whole like, like they have that line where they're like, you know, oh, I don't think that like some higher power and you know, God's leaping us around. It's like, well, not God. Not God. I, I think like some people take that literally, and I don't think it's literally. It's the same as with Sam being leaped around uh by God. You don't literally <laughs> you know, it could be debated at the uh the series finale what was going on there, but you don't literally see God sending them around places. There's there's some sort of evil power leaping them around, or they believe it, but they don't really know
7: for sure what it is, I think. I want to say the show gives us precedent that it is actually the devil.
9: I mean, we've seen the devil on the show.
7: <laughs> yes, exactly. But we see
9: God on the show at one point, too, so I don't think it's literally he's walking around at the uh, at the evil project telling them what they need to do <laughs>
8: <laughs> yeah there's the, there's there's lines that if you choose to take them that way and and like you both said i think some some people have that suggest that yeah th- there's some literal sense to them being in hell and the devil being involved whereas it's probably more likely to be especially given these parallels it's more likely to be just the way that sam and al refer to god or fate, or time, or whatever, leaping Sam, but yeah, without without God wandering round the project, <laughs> high fiving Gushy, and uh, saying, "Where should we send him next?" Eh?
9: <laughs> I find it interesting that they um, they say that uh, Lothos or Lothos. I think they say it both ways. <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting that they say that that, which is their their computer, their Ziggy equivalent, is the, what controls the assignments.
8: Yes. Yeah.
9: Rather than so, is the computer just telling them what to do? Is there some head honcho directing the project that we never meet?
7: What, like, what exactly is going on? And again, that's why to me this seems to be like a much more directed type of destructive force. And whether or not you want to call it the devil, there's obviously like a mastermind at work here somewhere. Mm. Where Sam sees his leaps as completely random
9: it's singin i tell you it's edward singin the <laughs> fifth
8: that's what he's doing another british guy it's gotta be evil <laughs> he, he was
9: gonna be the one the puppeteer behind the scenes all along
7: why are you staring
4: at me like that samuel
7: I mean, all that being said, these these are weird things, uh, the, the parallels and sort of the, the mirror image that sometimes fly with me, sometimes don't. I find them intriguing. But I also, you know, I said that there are things that they did that I think that really worked. And I think that comes down to Laura Harrington and Renee Coleman and the way they played the character duly. Because Aaliyah had so many, like, evil wheels within wheels. and. As you watch the episode from the start again, just with the concept in mind that she's trying to everything she can to destroy this family, I mean, she's just brilliant because every move she makes seems innocent and like she's on your side, Mm -hmm. but really she's just screwing everything up as much as she possibly can. I mean, the fact that she's, you know, she's attempting to to, to help Jimmy is just one of her tools to drive a wedge between Jimmy and Frank, you know? And I think that Corey saying, mom doesn't love me. I mean, she used hmm. to, but she doesn't anymore. Who knows what kind of shit she might be saying to that kid when no one else is around. I mean, that's where my mind went with that. And just intentionally ruining the dinners. Like, you know, you can read directions on how to cook a TV dinner, yet she's ripping the foil off to make them even worse than they already are. <laughs> so, <laughs> I Just, yeah, I, I just like, just all these little touches. And um, I think that that was a part of the episode that was really well written. And maybe because it fits in with one of the strengths of the episode or an additional strength of the episode to me, which is the leap plot and the Lamata plot. So what did you guys think of all that?
9: I loved how excited Sam was to see Jimmy and Frank and Connie again and Corey. So... He leaps in and he sees uh, that he's Jimmy and he's just like, he's just so excited. It's like he's meeting his second family. Hmm, Isn't that a bit odd though? Isn't it a bit odd? Well, I think by doing that, it drove home the point uh, when Sam and Aaliyah are talking and Aaliyah's like, well, don't you want to feel like, you know, like just, just a familiar touch, something familiar, how lonely it is out here.
1: I mean, you're really the only person I've ever met that can understand the longing that I felt.
2: The emptiness... The hunger for something, anything, something familiar—a
1: touch, a smell,
9: a taste—I think that that helps drive that point home. That like he he just wants something familiar, someone he knows, and the fact that he's going back to this family that he lived with for a brief period of time just drives that
7: point home. What did you find out about it, Matt?
8: Just that was the leap—that positive an experience for him in Jimmy. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't remember. Jimmy was a great episode for us, for the audience. We're excited he's back. Um, I don't know if I quite get why Sam is. But yeah, it doesn't bother me that he is. And it does It helps sell a lot of other elements of the episode. So, I, you know, I don't I don't really have a problem with it. It just throws me a little bit.
9: Well, I think he he really cared about the family. And this is also part of Sam's just nerdy, like, science side or leaping side or whatever just like oh my god i'm in the same family again this is great what this has never happened before what's going on here yeah
7: yeah i mean i i was kind of confused as to why he wasn't swiss cheesed a little bit but then i realized because you would just have to go through the motions of him being swiss cheese to remember them anyway so why not make it just like a happy realization
9: oh he barely gets swiss cheesed anymore
8: (laughs) yeah he he does remember an unusual amount of detail of this one that's you know, but again, it because plot. It's uh, they they have to just get on with it. It is a wee bit weird how much he remembers about that, and yet conveniently forgets about elements of uh, Leap Back and uh, and various other shows when they need to.
7: Mm. Well, Allison, what you had touched upon with Aaliyah saying, "Don't you miss like a familiar touch," and um, there was also like parts when Sam is driving with Frank in the truck. And they're basically talking about Frank going off to cheat on Connie. Mm-hmm. And um, Frank is like, you wouldn't understand.
4: Hey, don't lecture me. You save it for Connie. She's the one who's having trouble communicating. No, she isn't. There are certain things a man needs, Jimmy. You
7: wouldn't understand. Basically, I'm not getting laid. And Connie's ignoring me. And that's my justification. And you wouldn't understand. And Sam is like, yes, I would. And that was one of the issues that I with with this episode, just the creepy romance, just because it's so problematic with, you know, Connie and Jimmy and thinking that, okay these are the two people that they're inhabiting, so to speak. Yet they're pushing this romance between Sam and Aaliyah. And Sam is even acknowledging the fact that, you know, he is, you know, lonely and horny, too. And he misses Tamlin (laughs) and um, he's DTF. It's like they played it. So that he was hesitant almost right up until the point where, you know, she seduces him in the bedroom. He he just keeps mentioning, well, I'm Jimmy and you're Connie and at least a part of Jimmy is, is, is with me. And I guess maybe they were uncomfortable with it too. That's why they, they just couldn't leave it alone. Am I the only one that, that sort of like just picked up on that and was really freaked out by it, like weirded out by it?
8: I think it helps if you firmly believe that their bodies are leaping and it's just that other people are, are seeing an aura around them and it's not that the minds are leaping into someone else's bodies, Chris.
9: Well, Sam says, uh, like, part of him is Jimmy, not that he is Jimmy. Yeah.
7: Right. Yeah. right. Mm. And guys, um, you know what? They touch each other and they see each other's bodies. Yeah. I'm willing to concede that this is 100% body leap. Okay. Yeah. At least in this, because in, in, every episode in this is
8: a body leap. <laughs> That to me makes it a lot less creepy. Yeah, yeah. Be- because I don't have that inner conflict that you do. No, I-, I didn't even question the creepiness. Maybe I would if I'd thought about it in the way that you did.
9: I mean, I there are problems that I have with Sam having sex on leaps that are very um, that I ha- There, there are some issues there, um, but not as much in this one because both of them are who they tell each other they are. Yeah, it's consensual but hesitant. So I don't think like Sam has true feelings for her. I think like she's manipulating him and he he wants something familiar like it's been so long since he's had anyone who really knows who he is. Yeah. Um like a, a romance or a, a fling or whatever as himself like for for who he is rather than than um than who they think he is. I think it's just like a human vulnerability. And and even he, like while they're on the bed, like he's like, I don't know, this doesn't feel right. Um, and it's supposed to feel a, a little seedy and uncomfortable. And uh, I think they were effective in that way. She was very, very manipulative. But uh, yeah, I think Sam is, is vulnerable and human. And I think this was him falling victim to, to Aaliyah because uh, she knew about that vulnerability. And like Sam was saying, like, I think she felt the same sort of things. Maybe not in that moment, but I think that she she very much related to what was going on with him.
7: And I think that the fact that she is, um, especially upon a rewatch, just completely manipulating him and pumping him because he's just so gullible. He's just so affably Sam here. Yeah. Because why would she have any kind of negative intention? And he's just telling her everything you know, because he's just like so excited, you know what uh I really,
9: really liked was um when uh when Sam and Ali are in the kitchen, and uh he's he's trying to figure out how to to solve the situation with the Lamada family, and she's like, "Well, do you always think of other people before yourself
6: <laughs> and
9: he goes, well, what do you mean what do you mean he's Utterly confused as to why anyone would even ask the question. (laughs) Like, I just love that. That, like, Sam is just like, well, why would you even ask?
7: (laughs) What do you mean? Yeah, right. Why wouldn't you think about other people? It plays into one of Sam's supposed strengths that that's how he is. But everything she does is setting him up for a fall.
9: Oh, yeah. He's, He's completely naive. And she seizes upon that.
8: Yeah. He's like a puppy. A puppy that you want to have sex with. You you put it out there, Chris. But that's we're we're talking about a scene where they jump into bed together, and you're comparing him to a puppy.
7: I think I just found the little line that I'm going to use at the sting (laughs) of the uh, at the (laughs) (laughs) that squeak. (laughs)
6: Uh,
7: It's the patented Matt Squeak laugh. Um, But it's funny. Why don't we? Can we? Can we talk more about um, the Lamadas in this? One of you on the um, rundown had added uh, a talking point, which I think I never thought of, but it, it's it's pretty intriguing, um, about the infidelity. Was it, was it you, Matt,
8: that wrote it? Yeah. The, there's so much to unpick here, and uh, there's two different ways to approach this. One of the which is, how long has Aaliyah actually been there manipulating and doing stuff? Has she been there for months? Has she been there for days? If she's been there for days, then... Wow, there's a lot of stuff going on with Frank that must predate that. Even if she's been there for months, you've got to wonder what's burning. A few TV dinners gonna do to make you run off with your secretary? So I, I, I question the strength of their marriage at this point. Maybe there
9: was sort of like a crack already forming that they they fixed in the original history. Yeah, but Aaliyah like came in and and made things worse.
7: Well, uh, here's the thing, though, Matt, when when you put it in that context, like how long was she there and how much damage was already done? They clearly imply at the end of the episode <laughs> oh, yeah. that Sam left back two days exactly, and he said, where's where's Connie? She's still at her sister's. So apparently Aaliyah replaced her sometime between when she was at her sister's and when she got yeah. home.
9: It was just two days. Yes. Yeah. It was just two well, days past that, that, what was going on.
8: And she was away. <laughs> so. That's the implication. I mean, it, not necessarily. It could have been longer than two days, but and in fact, I've I've got to think it's got to have been longer than two days, surely. But either way, you know, it it could be this two days thing is just a, a random fluke um, that he just got dropped back in an earlier point in time, and actually, Ali has been there for a month. I'm sorry, even if it's been a month, the, the kind of stuff she's been doing, what paying paying a bit more attention to to Jimmy than to Frank not making the dinners so well. There are some fundamental issues with that marriage that are that are just happening already. And I think John aquino plays it so well, like he doesn't for me, he doesn't come across as as the bad guy, even though he is, but it, definitely somebody who is not happy in his marriage. There's stuff going on that he just doesn't understand. Um we've seen this before in Quantum Leap, um in kind of women's lib. Uh, related episodes. It's come up a few times, and and John is the latest in a in a line of actors who've been able to play both sides of it. But either way, whatever Aaliyah as Connie is doing, yeah, I I just got to wonder how much she could possibly have done that we don't know about. That if it hadn't happened, everything would be happily ever after. I I do not believe that Frank and Connie are going to live out the rest of their lives.
9: I mean, they had problems in the episode Jimmy, too. They kind of had... It, I think what Aaliyah does is she seizes upon uh, vulnerabilities that are already there. So, I mean, yeah. If I never ever thought about the timeline on this at all. And the fact it was
8: just two days is incredible. That two two days thing, there's, again, it's not spelled out, but it is a very strong hint that that's...
9: Yeah. Right. So, I, I don't know. I think the best way to, to try and... Um, All of this together is to think that there were issues in the marriage. And we saw that in the episode Jimmy too. But they smoothed them out. And uh, in the history that Aaliyah was making, uh, she was just making it worse to the point where it's the whole thing fell apart.
7: Mm. But that once again implies that she's playing a longer game. And I know that we're used to seeing leaps that take, you know, a few days maybe uh, because that's just the formula of the show. But um, speaking as someone who's been married for 26 years, there are always going to be strains. But to accelerate something that is maybe uh, a lingering doubt or, or just whatever, just trying to foment some kind of discord mm-hmm. – It's definitely going to take longer than two days unless things were ready to pop. Yeah, if it was two days, then... Mm. And there's really no indication that it was? I don't know.
9: Yeah, if if Aaliyah had leaped into... And I don't think this would have been as, as good of an idea, but if she had leaped into Shirley and she was the one making the moves on Frank and then it's like okay maybe she was the one pushing things forward and then like in a shorter amount of time like put him in a compromising position that ended his marriage maybe the shorter timeline would have made a little more sense but yeah it definitely seems something that was like the the long game
8: in both those cases though Allison you're still removing the agency from Frank Frank is willing to commit adultery, and whether oh, yeah. it's yeah. whether it's his wife pushing him away by making a bad dinner or his secretary being hot, it, it's still <laughs> he's the one that's <laughs> made that choice. Definitely,
9: and but I don't think he he comes off as the bad guy. No, um, I know, but I, it's I said, like, I'd... yeah, yeah, you were saying that too. Like, I don't think he comes off like the bad guy in the situation, though. It is like a shitty situation, and. It feels like, you know, you understand where he's coming from, even though he does horrible things in this episode. Yeah. There are really uncomfortable moments with this character, and I thought John Diacchino did a great job in this episode. He was really intense, and you could tell like he was putting 110% into this.
8: The bit where Sam confronts him at Shirley's, and, and he's saying, just, just get on your bike and go home, please. There's something in his face that says, like, I'm not happy with how things are going. Whether I go home or I stay here, I'm not happy with this. This yeah. this is the least worst option for me, is is running off with Shirley. But you can tell he's got this inner turmoil going on. And that's where I say, I, even though he's doing bad things, I feel some sympathy for him.
9: Because he still cares about Connie yeah. a lot. And um, when... <laughs> After uh, Aaliyah sets Sam up and uh, says that he tried to rape her and uh, Frank starts attacking (sighs) Sam, he's beating him in the corner viciously.
8: Stop it! No! No! I
9: won't
0: let you lie to me, Jimmy! I won't let you lie to me,
9: Jimmy! And you know what? All he's doing, he's slapping him a lot. He's not like, we've seen Sam get beat up worse, but it feels so violent.
8: Yeah, that that emotionally, this is emotionally the, the biggest beating that Sam has ever taken. You can feel it every single slap. And I've, I've got to wonder, just from the performance point of view, usually, you know, he gets these big cinematic punches that are clearly pulled. I just imagine John just went for it. It, it looks like he's really just letting go. I think he did. And Scott's like, yeah, just beat the crap out of me do it
9: i think they had an agreement to do that because like i've heard that like scott Bakula also when he does like fight scenes like he doesn't pull back yeah like he doesn't try to hurt anyone or anything but he just like goes for it and i think they had an agreement to do that because it felt like he was really just wailing on him
8: yeah he just looked like he'd absolutely lost control and it, it gets me whenever i see that scene
7: And whatever they did, um, however they came to an agreement beforehand, it just it it really they sold it on screen. Uh, Yeah, definite highlight of the episode because, Mm -hmm. and it's one of the things that I I find very troubling about this episode because you want to like Frank because he was the hero of the episode Jimmy, and in this he is just acting like a petulant little boy. Who is just turning his back on his relationship. And that's why it would have to be a longer game that Ali is playing. For him to make a turnaround like this in the course of two days is just him being a dick. And he is a total dick in a lot of this episode. Both him and uh, (laughs) the secretary, Shirley, played wonderfully by Kristen Cloak. They are condescending assholes. (laughs) And they treat Jimmy like he's too stupid to figure it out. Whereas the whole point of Jimmy and, and like, Frank's relationship was to fight for the fact that, no, Jimmy is actually, you know, a high-functioning individual who can exist on his own and can support himself and and can be a productive member of society. And they take all of that away in this. Like, Frank is just treating him like a dope. And uh, that's – the. if I had to pick one thing about this episode that just kept annoying me – it was it was Frank's behavior and the fact that it, like he wasn't telling Shirley. Oh, Jimmy, why don't you uh, why don't you go get us some pops? It, don't don't condescend to him. You know, it's just what ah it just pissed me off. <laughs> I get what you're saying. Um, Jimmy is
9: high functioning but um mentally at a certain level. I don't think they say what what age exactly because it varies uh, with uh, people with Down syndrome, but. I think that um, he's a character that could be fooled and that's what they were trying yeah. to do. And, and like it's it sucks that they were being condescending. I don't think it undoes uh, how high functioning he was or how productive he was. I think they were just – they were taking advantage of the fact that they knew that they could pull the wool over his eyes.
7: Yeah, and I'm not saying that um, it takes anything away from Jimmy. What I'm saying is, that, is it takes away from the person who we thought Frank was that all of a sudden he he makes this 180 in the way he treats his brother, when he knows that his brother is capable of seeing through the bullshit. That really annoyed me.
8: One other thing on the topic of the two days, because we keep going back to that. Uh, Corey also has a line towards the start of the episode saying, that was the third time this week. So this argument has happened three times during the week, but apparently they've only been, uh, Aaliyah's only been there for two days. So again, the, the arguments have been there before Aaliyah.
7: If we go on the two-day supposition.
8: If we assume the two days, which was clearly the writer's intent, because otherwise, why two days? Why not six months?
7: It's funny, though, because um, we have our uh, Ziggy up to her old tricks in this, only worse, worse so. I mean, she's in a complete tizzy. She's in an uproar.
9: (laughs) Ziggy zaps Dr. Beaks across the room? What is going on here? Yeah,
7: go Ziggy. Uh, If I were Verbena, I wouldn't talk either. It's just ridiculous.
9: (laughs) How does Ziggy even have this ability? Ziggy can just shoot lightning out or something? Like, zaps her across the room. It's like Superman (laughs) 3. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to turn her into an android. I mean, I'm always wondering about this. Like, what was Dr. Beaks doing by Ziggy anyway? Was Was she just walking through the control room? Is it just, can Ziggy get and just reach her wherever? Was she in the waiting room?
8: She's talking to Ziggy, because Ziggy's having such a breakdown that uh, they... Oh! It's like a counseling session. Yeah.
7: Right, okay. So maybe she was talking to the giant orb in the control room. Yeah. And, you know, that orb can shoot out energy. It, it shot out energy to the synchrotron, which I think is Keetor Man's job, right?
9: Yeah, Ziggy <laughs> did. Oh, my God. This is just unhinged power from Ziggy. Exactly. Zapping people all the time. So there
8: we go. It's just a, it's a throwback to the Leap Back.
9: What's going on at the project? They spent so much money. Why did Sam think that she needed lightning abilities? <laughs>
7: <laughs> you know, you had to juice up that accelerator chamber somehow. <laughs> I think though that they used it to good effect to show you sort of the negative ripple effect that Aaliyah's actions were having because what did Al say? Something like, you know, four air crashes and yeah. well,
4: four airline crashes, an outbreak of Rangoon Flu, three
9: earthquakes and seventeen floods. Yeah, what is that about? Was it supposed to be like butterfly effect? Why was it causing all of these things? Yeah, that's that's the way I read it.
8: That's not quite how the butterfly effect's meant to work though, right? No. Yeah, it's not really. Surely these things take place over a long period of time. You tread on a butterfly and all these events happen. But she's there for two days, possibly, burning a TV dinner, and that causes a volcano immediately.
9: It's past A-Lia doing it. It's past A-Lia messing it up in other leaps,
7: and then it tr- ripples off into this. There you go. To quote a certain mysterious figure, the lives you affected have affected others, and those lives, still others. You've done a lot of bad, Aaliyah Leaper.
9: Does this mean they've just now entered the timeline? I know that we've, like, we've debated this before about, like, the origin of the evil leapers. I feel like it has something to do with uh the leap back and the, uh, the hand link and the stuff in Starlight Starbright with the information that was recorded from Sam.
8: Yeah, this is pure headcanon stuff. Yeah, yeah well, I wanted to get into that. So how do you guys reconcile this stuff? There's no way that in all the leaps that he's made so far that he's never met Aaliyah. And yet he does meet her, especially if he's done including the comics and novels. He meets her several times in a a short space of time. So, yeah, like Alison says, it seems headcanon-wise, I'm not trying to claim this was intentional, surely she's only just entered the timeline, which I, I think a lot of us put down to the Starlight, Starbright sequence, and certainly one of the novels puts it down to the events of killing time.
9: I think someone j- got a hold of the hand link that got left behind in the leap back. And they used that to mine information once it was actually in the time period it could be used. And I think like they combined that with the information uh, that was recorded by those uh, government guys in uh, Starlight, Star Bright, I think someone nefarious put this information together. And that's why the evil project is so similar to, to Sam's project.
7: Yeah, All right. I think that Aaliyah, I mean, just the implication of what Zoe says at the end, how we clawed our way out of hell to to get simple assignments like this, homewrecking and, you know, domestic whatever. Um, it implies that they've been doing this for quite a while. So I don't know, even if they've just entered Sam's timeline. Yeah, but that's, that's a time travel project. <laughs> yeah, but what, what I'm saying is you've you got to think about it more fourth dimensionally, to quote Doc Brown. I mean, just because this is Sam and Aaliyah's first, quote, meeting, like Matt said, doesn't mean they haven't crossed paths before. And it doesn't mean that she hasn't been doing it for a long, long time.
9: They're not necessarily from Sam's time period. There's stuff in the in the, the script, in the uh, the stage directions for a uh, future episode that seem to imply what year they're from.
8: Yeah, 2020.
9: 2020! And it all makes sense! 2020, done it again!
7: <laughs> well, <laughs> but then how old is Aaliyah if you're gonna go with everything based on Sam's string theory? It's
9: time travel! She's like, she traveled back from 2020 to 1960-something.
7: But she's got to travel within her lifetime. How old is she in 2020? She doesn't look like she would be 60 years old. <laughs> That's true.
9: Maybe the evil leapers figured out how to do it outside
7: their their lifetime. Yeah, could be, could be. And you know, now that you guys are saying this, maybe, uh, maybe Shirley was a leaper too. Did Sam ever touch Shirley?
9: Maybe Shirley.
7: <laughs> oh, they got multiple leapers. Yeah, like another another wow. evil agent oh my God. working the other angle. Huh. <laughs>
8: Maybe Corey was too.
9: <laughs> oh my god, maybe we're the Leapers all along.
7: <laughs> it's just, yeah, I mean, but when you open up this can of worms, it's like nothing is really off the table. It's a, it's mind-boggling. It's timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly fun.
9: They could have done some really cool things with this concept that I don't think Quantum Leap would have gotten into. Like, maybe in the novels. I know they touched on the evil Leapers a little bit, but like there were a lot of, like, wacky crazy concepts you could do with a uh, evil time-traveling nemesis. Yeah. They could mess up Sam's timeline.
7: Yeah, that's they could, true. Like,
9: they could screw up and change the timeline as we know it. They could do all sorts of things.
7: Yeah, and I mean, it just begs the question as to if they know Sam is out there doing good, why haven't they done that? Yeah. It doesn't bear close inspection because it starts to fall apart, but that's time travel as a genre. Really doesn't bear close inspection.
9: That's true. I guess if they if they had the information from um uh, from that recording, they would know about Sam. So maybe not.
7: But I think the Hand link has to do with it. I got to ask you to elaborate on that because the only thing that you got from that recording was Sam saying, "This is my theory," and um, I have uh, these. This is like my my funding, like my code, my DARPA code, or whatever it is that he gives them at the end of Starlight Starbright. What, how does that translate into them getting information about how leaping actually works? Unless they'd send a mole into the project? Do you see something like that? I mean, if, or... if
9: they have all of those codes, maybe Well, someone... the code was just
7: like the funding code. It wasn't like... Was it the funding code? How much did he give them, though? They did cut away, so we don't know how much. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm saying it's, a, it's as good a supposition as any. I just don't remember what was in the episode that might bolster that idea.
8: There isn't much, and that's why the Killing Time theory holds a little bit more weight, because he does give away a lot more information in Killing Time. But the thing is about the Starlight-Star-Bright theory is, in the original history, Sam is one person with a crazy idea who just about struggles to get enough government funding to get some research done, and then still has to step into the accelerator before it's finished, blah blah blah... If there's some evidence back in the sixties that time travel is real, even without any information as to how, and the government's got hold of that evidence, what's to say they wouldn't find some of the best scientists around and say, "Look, have a bunch of money, just sort this out. This this is this is a real thing. We'll actually give you decent funding, which wouldn't have been there originally. So they don't have to. Sam doesn't have to have given away much information, just enough." to make them believe that it's real and that would be enough to change the timelines I would say.
7: But then how does it evolve into evil? Well,
8: again, we we could we could talk about Mirror's Edge some more, but um I honestly don't remember how Mirror's Edge handled it, so We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. But we don't need to have an answer for that. All we need to know is that there is a uh, now, in the timeline, another project going on. Whether that's been spun off from Killing Time or from Starlight Starbright, there is another project going on. It just happens to not be led by someone as lovely as Dr. Beckett. Yeah, it's
7: just someone with nefarious purposes. You it, know? It,
8: there doesn't need to be an explanation for that as such.
7: All right. And you know, it's funny to me that um, one of the key things that I noticed in my second rewatch of the episode was that Sam himself never calls Aaliyah a leaper. He calls her a time traveler. Mm-hmm. And it isn't until later on that Aaliyah says, why haven't I leaped yet? Yeah. So Sam didn't even seem to be making the connection that we all did because, you know, this was touted as the evil leaper. Well, he asked if she was talking
9: to a hologram. So he clearly seemed to catch on very quickly that uh, this was that worked similarly to how his leaping worked.
8: And yet on the flip side, do you notice that he uses the term Swiss cheesed and she knows exactly what he means by that?
9: Interesting.
8: She says, it's like my memory was Swiss cheese. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We all know what that means. Whereas in the pilot, Sam and Al have a bit of a conversation to explain the metaphor. But no, uh, you you were Swiss cheese during leaping. Okay. Okay. We know what that means.
9: Picture this scenario. So season six happens uh somehow they go to the evil project and you Yay. see it's just this like this this is hellscape there's just like you know people being tortured and kept in holding chambers and all this stuff and you're like oh what's going on who's the mastermind behind everything and then the man behind the curtain comes out and it's older sam no <laughs> <laughs> It's so similar.
8: And he says, oh boy. <laughs>
9: <laughs> and then he presses the button, the trap door opens, and the flames.
7: <laughs> Fire, brimstone, and oh boys. I couldn't guess. Season six.
8: Oh, what we've missed. <laughs> oh my god. I would love and hate to see that. Yeah, that's it. Dr. Sam Beckett never returned home, because home is in New Mexico, and actually he went to go and run the Evil Leap Project in London, where all the evil British <laughs> people are.
9: Why does everyone assume it's British? Maybe Zoe is a transplant. Like she's
7: the, the the only British one.
8: Because it's evil, and this is an American show from the nineties. So it's the <laughs> British is evil.
7: And I'm breaking my own. I'm breaking my own rule here, but Then wh- why is her hologram named Tim's?
8: Yeah, but he's not English. <laughs> but he's named after a, a river in the UK. He's definitely
9: not
7: English.
8: <laughs> I gotta be honest. I know a lot of British people, and none of them are named after rivers.
9: <laughs> yeah, what? TAMS is just it's just weird. The yeah. whole <laughs> thing's weird.
8: But we're we're leaping ahead. All
9: of this is headcanon. Here's what I love about the evil leapers. All of it's headcanon. You you like you know so little about it, um, that like you have to make up what happened because they, they didn't they weren't able to tell us really what it was. I'm sure they would have gotten into it more if they'd continued. But as such it's just sort of the seed of an idea
7: that can can go in so many different directions. Yeah. Very much so. And I just Part of me wishes that we had gotten a little bit more concrete information on that. And part of me is just relieved that we never did. <laughs> so, I mean, because it, it, could, it could cut both ways. And right now, it's just vaguely awful instead of definitively awful.
8: What? <laughs> I don't
9: think it's bad. I don't what? think
8: so. <laughs> uh, I just said that to get a rise out of Matt. I, I'm lost. I'm lost for words.
9: <laughs> it was very good about this higher power that's uh leaping the, the evil leapers around <laughs> sam when he's doing i want to get into this after this because the whole like kill me and you'll kill yourself oh, thing yo whoa whoa we have a whole thing to go with that <laughs> he's like killing me will only add to his power or her power and i'm like oh that's so inclusive he's like the devil could be a woman <laughs> why not his or her power Killing me will only kill yourself. What is this
8: nonsense? Hang on, are we are we going there already? Let's do it.
7: We have to the kirk fu he lays on the kirk fu at the end and tries to make her head explode with his logic.
9: Aaliyah! Killing me will only kill yourself. <laughs> you
7: can't kill me? You'd be killing yourself.
4: Aaliyah I mean think about it. I only exist because you do, and and you because of me. If I die, it only makes sense that you would too. Shoot him.
1: What if he's telling the truth? What if I kill him and then I kill myself and then I can't go
4: home? On? Evil only exists because of good. If you
9: kill me, do it. We cancel each other out. What kinda of, what kind of bullshit is that? No, no, I don't. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> he could have gotten through to her in any other way. I one I, of the I, I genuinely do like that Sam wants to see the, the best in her. He is begging for his life here, but uh we see in future episodes that he genuinely does care about Aaliyah and, and trying to save her from herself, basically. So um but the whole like there could have been this could have been his argument he had a basis for it but he's like you'll kill yourself if you kill me we are the we are the opposites and the same we can balance each other like why what? what is
8: it's beautiful this? it's beautiful man poetic
9: <laughs> why does she believe this there's no basis for this
7: uh, yeah I, that's my notes exactly not compelling enough to sway Aaliyah. just just nowhere near it it's just it's nonsense it's absolute nonsense I'm sorry, Matt. Are you the dissenting voice here?
8: Well, I... I, Yeah, I agree with you, which is why I think there was more to it. I think she's already starting to have feelings for Sam out of her own desperation for something familiar. I think his argument does suck, but I don't (laughs) think that's why she starts to sway. I think she's like, yeah, I almost had a bit of the Beckett, and I definitely want a bit more. It's purely physical. yes (laughs) It, yes <laughs> well like okay i wanted to get into uh i don't
9: think chris knows about this matt you want to you want to explain the deleted ending scene and how that changes everything
8: uh, oh i actually was going to talk about a different deleted moment um and well, let's I, go all the deleted moments this first i'm hearing about any of this stuff now color me intrigued there's there's three pretty cool deleted moments to talk about in this one but go on allison you, you take the the ending
9: Okay, well, okay, so after Sam does the, like, killing me will only kill yourself argument, and uh, Aaliyah gives him the gun, um, and you can find this, like, on YouTube, the clip's up, It's it's been leaked, um, Sam has the gun, and then Al tells him to shoot her, and he lifts the gun like he's gonna do it, like, yeah. he's gonna shoot Aaliyah, and, like, he's betrayed her before they disappear and start uh, going back to the project. So that, like, that makes Sam's argument, I can t- totally tell why they cut it, because it, it makes his argument seem completely insincere. Yeah. Like, he was just going to
7: betray her anyway. That to me sounds, he's finally giving her a taste of her own medicine. Because she's been doing nothing but manipulating him throughout the episode.
9: No, that's not. No, that's. But he's hesitant about it, too. It's not like he's like, oh, immediately he's going to shoot her.
7: It's not in keeping with Sam's character. And I'm really glad that they did cut it because it's really it's just not something the character would do, in my opinion, regardless. But um, that's that's interesting. What are are the other moments that you were uh, talking about,
8: Matt? they're not as as impressive or as important, but i I think one of them for anyone watching this unaware of the twist there's a really clever scene in the episode as broadcast where we first see Zoe, and they turn the the usual salmonal trope of they're talking to each other, another character's listening in and has and thinks there's a different conversation going on. They really turn that on its head with the audience reading the scene one way, but it actually playing out a completely different way. And that's brilliant, and I love that. There's a scene that was written in one of the drafts, and I don't know if it ever got filmed, but there's a scene later on that it doesn't quite spell out that there's something wrong, but it really heavily drops some hints. Like Zoe says, oh, how are things going with the spaz? Um, in reference to Jimmy. Ouch. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it, it also, I think it. that was definitely right to be cut, and I don't know if it was... Um, I don't know if it was filmed or not, but it, it starts to spell out the shock twist a bit too much for my liking. And um, and I, I love that moment where Aaliyah leaps in or, or the, the morph happens. It's absolutely fantastic. One of my favorite moments of the whole series.
7: I'm sorry. I, I think that, that's called a magnetic convergence. Oh, okay. there we go. It, yes. Yeah.
8: <laughs> Whatever the hell that means.
9: <laughs> that was like a high tech special effect back then, too. That morphing. That was expensive and like a big deal
8: it's it's where they, they touch each other and something happens and then Ziggy analyzes it and comes to the conclusion that something happened when they touched each other. I I, I love that explanation. <laughs>
9: something like, happened.
8: Yeah, they think something must have happened when we touched each other. Yeah, we know. We were there. <laughs> we watched it happen. That's literally what just happened.
7: Well, isn't it interesting too that the holograms can see the leapers for who they are at that point? We haven't got yeah. to my
8: other deleted moment, but we can come back to that. Oh, no, please. If if it's ta-
7: if if I'm if I'm stepping on it
8: no, no, no. It's, it's only because we're not going to lead to this deleted moment any other way, because this is completely irrelevant. Okay. But this is another one that was filmed and is out there. The bedroom scene is a little bit saucier in the early edit.
9: Really? Because it was pretty saucy already.
8: The way they actually cut, there's about mm, seven or eight seconds cut out, and the way they cut it out is so neat, you can't tell unless you're watching for it. But there's the, the bit where she she kind of Goes down a little bit, kisses his chest, and then looks up. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the original edit, I'm not making this up. You can find this. She goes a lot further down (laughs) and then (laughs) makes her way back up again. And they just they cut it just so that you don't see part of it. But she's she's definitely um, trying to tempt him.
9: Oh my gosh, saucy!
8: It's very raunchy. But as I say, I I have no other way of leading into that than by talking about other deleted scenes that are in the script and stuff so so I I had to had to force this into the conversation somehow.
9: I I think that was like the the steamiest the show's gotten and this is the darkest the show's gotten like all sorts of like they're going like as far as they can go.
7: Yeah, and again just the subtext of it um, you know, being Connie and Jimmy. To any outside observer is oh, what but just, again, it's like just a complete about that, mind bleep for me. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just can't help. Exactly. Thank you.
9: <laughs> there were some cut lines, too, uh, that were referencing in greater detail, like the things that Aliyah's done. I don't remember at what point it was, but I, I just remember it was more graphic, just describing like specifically things that she had to do for the project.
7: Right, Like when she went back and she had to kill the guy who was going to kill Hitler. Right, that was probably one of them, right? <laughs>
8: <laughs> I'm just making shit up now. What?
7: What was? Do you, Do you remember what? Uh, what line
8: she had Matt? There was this one moment. I don't think it's in the final episode. There's one moment where she said she was a serial killer.
9: Yeah, I think it was stuff like that. Where it was just like it was just like a little more graphic with it.
8: Oh wow! Just for reasons of headcanon, I think it's worth highlighting the way it's said. So Sam says in the script, "Tell me about it. I've been a priest, a serial killer, and everything in between." And then Aaliyah says, I was a serial killer once. She doesn't say I leapt into a serial killer. She says, I was a serial killer once. I don't know if that was meant to be a dual meaning, but I I love that line.
9: Oh my gosh. You think she was like, well, she seems very remorseful though. Yeah. Because at the end of the episode, um, when uh, she's try- she's uh, got the gun on Sam and then uh, Zoe's like, you know, we worked our way up to this. You want to go back to that? And then she's like, no, I can't kill those people again. <laughs> which seems to imply that she had to kill people before Um, she was able to work her way up to less nasty assignments, I guess. Yeah.
7: And I think the only way that I could see Sam's argument, even though we just spent a good amount of time tearing it down is how ridiculous it is. But there's a scene where she sort of looks off into the middle distance and maybe the wheels are spinning in her head as he's saying it to think Lothos has no allegiance to anything or anyone. And, if he felt that, you know, if there's even the slightest chance that me killing Sam makes my role redundant, I don't think he would have any hesitancy to just wipe me out of existence somehow or kill me or put me back. That's the only way Sam's argument works for me in, in the context of the story. Other than that, it's just it's, it's every bad trope we've seen about the good evil duality. I need you. You need me. I made you. You made me. It's, it's, it's been done to death. I don't know, did, did Car and Kit have a similar exchange, Allison?
9: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they probably did, and I'm not thinking of it, but I mean, like, yeah, that it, it makes more sense with Car and Kit, because Car and Kit were the same model. Car was like an earlier version that wasn't quite right. You know, so they are sort of, they are of the same mold, literally. So um, with Sam and Aaliyah, you need to know a little bit more about, I mean, you definitely see the parallels. It's like, you could see his argument, like, you feel the same way that I do. I see, like, the same things in your eyes that, that I feel. Like, I know that you know this deep down inside. Like, that makes perfect sense. But to be like, you know, you and I, were like yin and yang, and we balance each other out. And if you kill me, then you're killing yourself. It, unless you're just talking metaphorically. But they don't seem to be talking metaphorically. See, if Sam was just like, you know, like, you're you're just destroying yourself by doing this, then maybe. But they seem to literally be acting as if, like, she thinks she will wipe herself from existence. I like when um when she says, uh, hey, is Al here? And Al goes, you
4: bet your sweet ass I am sweetheart. <laughs>
9: <laughs> Al's getting a little saucy, too. <laughs>
7: oh, yeah. He's got to protect his boy.
9: He's so. got to protect his boy, Sam. good right. Sam's my man. You <laughs> can't understand. something <laughs> from, from the future. Party hardy, drink some Bacardi.
7: Are you sure that you're not an evil leaper reprising the alphabet rap? <laughs> <laughs> Al's very. al Al's got some good stuff in this episode. I don't think we talked about Al that much. You know, we haven't because he was just so, um, I guess maybe it's what you said, Matt. It's just so much crammed in here that Hmm. uh, Al's reactions to me were just that. He was so, he was just basically reactionary and expository in this episode. Yeah, he wasn't able to do that much. Right, and they only had one real little Al-ism, you might say, when he's talking about his fourth wife, cutting his meat for him.
4: My fourth wife used to try and mother me all the time. She used to cut my steak for me when we went out to dinner that's how come i don't eat meat
9: that that's the you know what out of all the things in this episode that's the one that bothers me the most that part he said that's how come i don't eat meat implying that he's like been a vegetarian this whole time and but he's talked about like different like meats and stuff that he that he likes like he was talking about like the um chitlins in season 1 and all that maybe that was pre yeah. pre-vegetarianism he just doesn't see, and he was like looking at the gumbo and uh southern comforts like oh i wish i wasn't a hologram
7: he might have become a vegetarian later in life but you can still remember that freaking cheeseburger how do you get it out of your mind i i can't i still what, can't. cheeseburger
9: yeah or whatever just Oh, okay. I thought you meant a specific cheeseburger. Though in Kamikaze Kid, he wanted to bite a <laughs> Sam's burger, but he was a hologram, yeah. so he couldn't see. I'm just saying. There's so many times where he seems tempted by meat products <laughs> that it just seems weird that he was a vegetarian the whole time.
7: You know, it's funny because um, I have direct experience with this. Um... Alby, the esteemed founder of the Quantum Leap podcast, the creator of the podcast, is now vegan. And I've had uh, several meals with Alby where I'm having my cheeseburger and I'm just like, you sure you don't want some? Because I know he loves it and he misses it. It's just he's made a decision to not eat it.
9: Oh, and some people do that for, like, health
7: reasons or, you know, other reasons, too. Yeah, exactly. Or moral reasons, like, they've just come to a realization that this is no longer how I want to live my life.
9: You know what? I can see Al doing that because he's so big on environmentalism, and I feel like that kind of ties into, too, like, with uh, with
7: animal preservation and stuff like that. Maybe, like, for a moral reason, he's just like... And just how obscenely polluting the beef industrial complex is, or all, basically, any kind of uh, raising animals for food.
9: Ooh, I'm liking this headcanon. I'm liking it a lot. Oh, this is so good. You know what? This makes more sense in my head. It's not that I have a problem with vegetarianism. My boyfriend's a vegetarian. I like a lot of vegetarian dishes. It's just didn't, it's like the astronaut and POW thing. You have to make things make sense. Like, how does Al do all of these things?
7: (laughs) But I like it. I like that. This one's quite easy. We're getting into sort of goofier territory here. I have one goof, and uh, it kind of vexed me a little bit. But uh, the radio from the original episode, Jimmy, <laughs> is nowhere to be seen in the Lamada's kitchen any longer. And it's only been like a year and a half. They'd still be using that radio. Where, where'd you go? It broke. Corey, uh, Corey hit it with a football. It broke. <laughs> he was playing with his football in the kitchen? Were they roughhousing? Yeah. He was goofing around, goofing in the house with Jimmy. And then they and then they broke the radio. It's just like an episode of the Brady Bunch is what you're telling me.
9: Oh, yeah, yeah. They had to hide it from Connie. And then like they're like, you know, putting it under the table. And then they're like, oh, the dog did it. And then they're like, we don't have a dog. Uh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it.
9: <laughs> I love it. It was a Trudy reference in this as well uh they very briefly yeah that was another yeah i found it interesting that al also was like i've never cared about anyone that you've leaped into like i cared about jimmy like jimmy is the one because he reminds him of his sister and so both sam and al have this special connection to him al's met
7: jimmy but sam's never met jimmy he's always been jimmy but he's never met jimmy you know what yeah he's been jimmy but let's go back to your favorite episode I think maybe he feels like even more than having met Jimmy, he's at one point taken on Jimmy's persona completely. He knows Jimmy better than Jimmy knows Jimmy. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you give Jimmy shocker, I'll go back to the future forever. I mean, (laughs) come on. (laughs) That's true. I still cry when I think of that. (laughs) That's true. Save Sam.
9: (laughs) (laughs) I think Scott Bakula cited uh, Jimmy as like his favorite person he's leaped into as well. I think they, they really liked Brad Silverman.
7: I think so, too, and I think that if you're going to revisit an episode at that point, Jimmy had probably become somewhat of a fan favorite. So why not? Why not come back to it? It's also nice that they were able to take something that I think fans had built up a lot of good memories about and use that to completely subvert everything, leaping him into something that's so familiar and comfortable and saying, ha ha ha, evil leaper.
9: What would be the leap that you would want? S- like, least want Sam to revisit, like, because of the Evil Leapers?
7: Like, what's the one you're like, nah, this shouldn't have happened? <laughs> Don't go back to this. <laughs> I'm confused. Like, so which one do you want the Evil Leapers to overturn? If the Evil Leapers came back to another episode, which is the one you would be like, this was the worst possible choice? I mean, do we have to say dreams? I mean, we can say dreams, <laughs> but um, let's let's take dreams off the table because it's just low hanging fruit.
9: How did how do the evil leapers make dreams worse? That's a pretty bad situation all around. Um, let's see. It's
8: a good question.
9: I think Heart of a Champion would be like, why did they bother if <laughs> they revisited Heart of a Champion? <laughs> like, why are we back in Heart of a Champion, of all things?
7: <laughs> Leaping it without a net. <laughs> why? <laughs> Poor Scott, he's, he's motion sick, he's got an inner, inner ear thing.
9: Oh my god, yeah, Scott Bakula would be like, why? <laughs> why are we doing this? <laughs> you know, actually, what would be an interesting one is if, if, as if they leaped into M.I.A.? I think it would make things too
7: complicated. This is just, you know. Oh, I mean, because now you're going to have a third history for MIA, yeah. which is just, yeah, that's a little nuts. Yeah.
9: Leaped into the Boogeyman? Boogeyman
7: 2.0? That's a little redundant,
8: isn't
9: it? <laughs> Matt, do you have a episode you think would be terrible to
8: revisit? No, because the one that keeps coming to mind hasn't been up yet, and I can't keep referencing that.
9: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I see. I see. I see what you're laying down. Play ball. What do we care about playball? ball? Play ball, yeah. Play ball, yeah. <laughs> what if it was like, um... Uh, good morning
7: peoria like
9: why <laughs> Like, we gotta save rock and roll from these evil leapers
7: <laughs> actually you know the evil leapers they would have played on the fact that rock and roll is evil so
9: oh my god they play the records backwards <laughs> talking about the devil wow yeah it'd be like that movie trick-or-treat that has the, the evil uh rock star in it but it's an evil leaper
7: Okay, I think we've gone completely off the rails he's here, got, He's an
9: evil 50s rock star, so he's got, like, the, the greaser no. mullet and stuff, like, ha-ha. Ah.
7: Are you sure you're not an evil leaper here to send here to, to disrupt the podcast?
8: <laughs> I've got it, I've got it, you guys. They should go back and do an evil leaper sequel to Piano Man, so that you can have <laughs> Sam and Aaliyah singing somewhere in the night as a duet. Yes, <laughs> yes, right. yes, what yes,
9: yes. <laughs> Sam would be like, all right, Aaliyah. I see what you're saying about all this evil stuff, but what if? And then the piano <laughs> slides into. Gotta cut loose! Cut loose! <laughs> put on your Sunday shoes! And then she's like, yeah! I think we
7: got something. Yeah, I think that's it, Matt. Mic drop. Just walk away. Yeah. Nothing more needs to be said. You won. And <laughs> Al will be like, it made
9: her good. You changed history, Sam! <laughs>
7: Kevin Bacon dies in this history. Oh well. Yeah. <laughs> and then that guy with the mustache runs yeah. into the parking lot again and gets blown up and <laughs> it just keeps happening. Everybody can everybody, everybody
9: gun. Every, everybody,
6: everybody. 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 Everybody can lose!
7: Oh guys, um. I think that maybe uh, it's time for some final thoughts about Deliver Us from Evil. Okay, just one more thing I want to mention. Oh, this. you do have one more thing. Good. <laughs> the
9: terrible effect at the end. When, when, Elion, is that where you're being leaped out?
8: Oh, man,
9: that didn't look good ever.
8: Well, <laughs> oh, thank you for bringing that up. Oh, guys, you can't hate on that effect. I, I mean, yes, you can. Oh, it's
7: not so much the effects. I mean, you can hate on it, it is kind of a crappy effect. What I don't understand is okay. So now, how does this work? They whatever is Lothos ripping them out of the timeline? Is that the way they leap? I like what's going on there, and then how does Sam leap to two days before? Like what's happening there?
9: Yeah, none of this makes sense. They're like we we don't know how to fix this. Uh, I guess it just reset, <laughs> right? They yeah, mean, terrible. I'm not If if that could, if that was on the table the whole time, it kind of undercuts all of the stakes. <laughs> You could have done anything. It would
7: have been reversed. <laughs> you got to figure that there's a reset button inherent in every time travel story. But do we have to press it? I guess maybe they wrote themselves into a corner. They didn't know how to end it. That that to me is one of the biggest failings of the episode. I don't mind the episode. and We'll get into more of that in final thoughts. I have some definite thoughts about it. But that ending is just it, it smacks of, OK, we set up this awesome premise, but we just don't know how to carry on with it. So we're just going to what? Okay, he leaps back two days because he leaps back two days. And that somehow erases anything that they did.
9: Well, yeah, and, and when you get to the other Evil Leaper episodes, you also kind of have that in your mind, too. It's like, well, no matter what happens, can you just reverse it by the end? And just go
7: back in time and it didn't happen? I mean, and then are we getting into the idea now that Sam is leaping himself?
9: If Sam's leaping himself, this makes less sense than if it was, like, divine intervention. <laughs> like, God, God, time, fate, whatever. It's just like, whatever, just turn it back.
7: Well, he he's smart enough to think, well, if I just sleep myself two days beforehand...
9: But he doesn't do anything. He leaps out at the end.
7: Yeah, I know. That's, that's the other bullshit part of it. It's just, I don't think she's gone at all.
9: Why did he re- leap back two days and then leap out immediately? <laughs>
7: yeah. And okay, so you know what? Do you guys mind if I use this to springboard into my final thoughts about this episode? Because it, it's so pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, so we we have this thing where Sam comes to this horrible end for the LaMotta family in the sense that now Frank is convinced that Jimmy has tried to rape Connie. Um Connie for all intents and purposes now is going to be like a like a vegetable who doesn't know what's going on considering the trauma that Ali has been going through being ripped out of the timeline anyway that's the way my head canon says it. And Jimmy's going to be locked up in an institution for the rest of his life. Boop, snap our fingers, Sam leaps back two days that somehow erases everything, and then he leaps again just to have the ominous, uh, I don't think we've seen the last of Aaliyah at all.
9: Bum, bum, bum.
7: Okay, why not? If you're going to introduce the concept of an evil leaper that is really screwing up things that Sam once put right, why not have the ending where the LaMotta family has just been destroyed? They're just, they're done. Like, that's it. This is where we leave it now.
9: It would feel too cruel, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
7: Evil leaper. That's what she does. So if you're going to have Wait. this as a premise, why then take half measures at the end? Why, why give yourself an out at the end? Make it so that they completely destroyed this thing that we love so much. That gives it some stakes. That's true.
8: But then surely Sam would have just stuck around for long enough to have repaired that.
7: How, as Jimmy in an institution, he's already trying to tell Frank I'm not Jimmy and she's not Connie. Frank already thinks uh, he's out of his mind. Okay. Okay.
8: but look, I mean, you you said it yourself when you you open this can of worms. You know, is this Lothos ripping them out of time? I've got to think, and this, this yeah, certainly how my head works. That, yeah, it's not it's not that Sam's leaped himself back. It's that Lothos has said, right, this this whole leap has just gone to pot. I'm just going to pretend this never happened. And is yanking them out and wiping the whole thing out, which maybe God could have done that to, to Sam as well, but never has to because Sam's awesome <laughs> and always succeeds in his leaps. And, and that just, yeah, it's reset the timelines, but it's taking a little while for God to catch up and leap Sam out because... Yeah, the, the timelines get reset. Oh, actually, everything's going to be OK, which is just long enough for that 30 second mini leap at the end for him to say, yeah, oh, she's she's still out there. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's so it's, you know, it's, it's like that's, it's absolutely fine. It's fine. Don't question it, Chris. It's fine. It really is. Maybe that's why that effect
9: looked that way. It wasn't uh, them being leaped back. It was them being ripped out of the earlier part of the timeline.
7: Oh, so they became a paradox.
9: And time was resetting around Sam. It wasn't him leaping back. It
7: was time resetting. That's a good way to think about it. It's interesting. It was like Marty in the picture. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's good because, I mean, if I had a final observation, it would be that, and like, is this good quantum leap? I, I don't know if it's good quantum leap or bad quantum leap. It's just frustrating quantum leap to me. I'm intrigued. But I I just want a little bit more stakes in this because it is such a strong concept and if you're going to go with it, go 100% with it. Go 150% with it. Don't give us a reset button at the end. That being said, God, I wish we knew more about the Evil Leaper Project and where it all came from. And If I had more of that, I could overlook this being such like like a sci-fi trope and that Quantum Leap had to go to this well in season five in order to keep telling stories. And I think that's what really disappoints me most. It just, this seems like such a, it's a non-quantum leap thing. And they're just using it as a gimmick to tell a quantum leap story. So anyway, you guys know where I stand on this. Um, How about you, Allison?
9: I think it is a good episode. You just got to be in the mood for it because it is a different kind of quantum leap, I think. 'Cause uh, you know, I think if they'd gone uh the route you're talking about with a very dark ending, uh, I just don't know if it would feel in the spirit of Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap's a very a show about hope. Even though it has um some bummer endings, generally you feel like some good has been accomplished, second chances uh were made and it just uh I don't know if they could go as dark as this concept uh could possibly go. So yeah, I I think it's good and it's interesting and it makes you think a lot.
7: All right, and how about you,
9: Matt?
8: I just I mainly want to focus around a response to to your um final thoughts, Chris, because I think if you if you play by the rules that you set down at the beginning of this episode. You said let's let's try and focus as much as we can just on this. Let's not look at what's coming next. We know there's a follow-up episode later this season. As an introductory episode for something high-concept, yes, you don't get that many answers. You don't get any answers. You get a lot of questions raised. You get a really good tease at the end that there's going to be more, so we, we might get those answers. If we're going to talk about the the Evil Leaper arc as a whole, some of what you've said I might agree with. um, But I, I don't think that's a failing of this episode at all. I think this episode really introduces those characters so well gets me so pumped for their return yeah exactly what Alison said um i i like the fact that it had an it had an optimistic ending it's it's that typical trope that you get with with most tv shows that have recurring villains the villains have to fail every time because you know otherwise no show but they they handle that in a way that Yes, they failed, but they're still out there, and there's that dark music that kind of just gives you that, okay, when they come back, will they win next time kind of vibe, which is fine. I don't think they could have gone any darker than that. So yeah, I honestly, I i find this episode, um, yeah, good quantum leap. I don't know, because it is very different. It is very unusual quantum leap. But a good 45 minutes of TV, hell yeah, this is a fantastic hour of TV as far as I'm concerned.
9: And i can't I can't say enough about uh Renee Coleman and Caroline Seymour's performances yes. as well. I think that they're really interesting characters, uh really great actresses, and I'm just compelled to watch them
7: yeah, and I think that that goes a long way to um them casting because they knew they were going to bring these characters back, so they really nailed it um so that we could we could spend multiple episodes with these characters
9: and they'd had Caroline Seymour in a previous episode too, so I guess they they really liked
7: her in that one. She's got to be a ghost or a hologram. <laughs> Can't be tangible. By the way, she brings it. So, yeah, some good points, guys. I mean, so, yeah, I have definite problems. Um, there are things that I wish would have happened. But at the same time, if you're going to introduce a concept like this, I think they did it fairly well. So, all right. Um, I'm going to throw to a break. Um, but everybody stay where you are. Stay tuned because we're moments away from La Matapalooza. We have interviews with John D'Aquino, Laura Harrington, and Brad Silverman coming up. So stay tuned. We'll catch you on the flip side. The QLP
3: is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash Podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the Quantum Leap Podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you.
7: Hey, everybody. This is Sean Ray. And John Irons.
0: And we're the hosts of Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. We're a show that has a
7: little bit of everything. Yeah, we talk about movies and TV and cartoons, entertainment news, and every show has a different theme.
2: That's right. We might
7: discuss anything from our favorite bad movies to who would win in a fight
0: between C-3PO and the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah,
8: yeah, yeah. That was episode
7: 41, a classic Uh, You can download that episode and all of our other episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, We're on Podcast Addict and, of course, on our website,
8: CosmicPotato.com.
0: It's special guests and movie nudes and geeky nerddom, nerdy geekery and lightsabers and Time Lords and Ninja Turtles all the way down. So check out uh, Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. Hi, this is Richard Oakey and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast.
9: We're back, and here's our interview with John DiAquino.
3: Today on the Quantum Leap Podcast, we are very fortunate to have with us from one of my favorite episodes of Quantum Leap, John DiAquino. You know him as Frank LaMotta from Jimmy and Deliver Us From Evil. He was also in the final episode of Quantum Leap, and he wrote an episode of Quantum Leap, The Beast Within. Thank you for joining us so much.
0: my pleasure. And just uh, also, I think Tommy Thompson's name is on that episode. I, I, I had a lot to do with that episode, but Tommy and I wrote it together. All right. Tommy Thompson. They're one of their wonderful writers and uh, co-producer.
3: Could you start out by telling the listeners a little bit about your experience with Quantum Leap? It's kind
0: of magical. Um, I actually auditioned, I believe, three or four times the show. I think three times. felt like I had very good auditions and didn't get the job. And then uh, there was a particular Friday where I was up for uh, a movie called Flight of the Intruder with Mel Gibson, Robert Downey Jr. And I was also, I don't know how seriously in contention, but I was being considered for uh, Godfather Three, And, um, you know, it's been something I've been really working for for a while. And on that given Friday, uh, I got a phone call saying, you know, no to both of those. <laughs> I was just really low and uh thought, oh, God, just give me some place to put my thoughts, a place to to work, something to work on, and on that Monday, an audition popped up for the episode of Jimmy. But my first response was, "Man, wow, I've already gone in there, and I've already given my best three times. I mean do I really want to do this? Do I really want to have that possible rejection a fourth time? I'm so glad I decided to do it, and you know normally, if they're calling you back you know, all actors' egos aside, they like you. They're just trying to find the right fit. Well, this, this I think, was a great fit for me. It really, that particular part felt like it had my heart. And so on that Monday, I believe, I auditioned, and I can't remember if it was a day later that I was told I, I got it. And it was just a magical ride. I can talk for a while on it, but I'll just say the one thing that I do remember is before the show even was completed, before the episode was wrapped, Uh, I was getting phone calls, my agent was getting calls from NBC, from Universal, from Tom Belisario himself, and everybody was requesting meetings. And I think sometimes, you know, all of us actors, we wait for that that moment where it's the perfect marriage of yourself, your, your DNA, and the right character. That was a really good fit for me.
3: It's one of my personal favorites out of uh, Quantum Leap. It's when you think about Quantum Leap, you think about that episode Jimmy, and of course the Deliverers from Evil, which is almost a sequel to Jimmy in a way. And um, besides Scott and Dean, you're probably the actor that's on the show the most times.
0: I don't know about that. You know Bradley Silverman, who played the Mirror Image and he's Jimmy. Right. Um, he and I are still friendly. Um we' have been remained very close ironically, and that's another gift from the show. um but he always reminds me that he did one more episode than I did.
3: Oh, yeah, he was in shock theater, <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh so you you still do uh see him every once in a while. Keep in contact?
0: We had breakfast. We had a nice brunch breakfast together not long ago. He's doing very well. He's a pretty amazing fellow. He always has been. And uh, love him very dearly. We've remained brothers from that show. I remember him literally. Uh, we were <laughs> First day on set, and uh, he said, where are you going now? And I said, I'm going to go back to my dressing room and change for the next scene. He said, I will go with you. <laughs> and I said, okay. And then when he, it was time for him to change, now you will go with me. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty much it. We were uh, stuck together from that point forward, and we've really enjoyed a very good brotherhood from that show. It's been one
3: of the great gifts. That really uh, is nice to hear, because you, you hope the people you see that uh, get along on screen are friendly in real life, and when they are, it makes you feel better as a fan, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. It'd be a fun interview for you in the future.
3: <laughs> okay, uh, hopefully. That would be great if I can get in contact with him. So, really, when you were on two other Don Belisario shows before Quantum Leap, and that didn't help you get the roles the first time, you still had audition. You know,
0: I'm trying to think of the shows that I was on. One would have been maybe Magnum before. Is that what you're talking about?
3: Right. Magnum P.I. and Tequila and Benetti.
0: Was Tequila and Benetti? No, I think Tequila and Benetti was after, wasn't it? Uh, I, would have, I would have bet after. Okay. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was after, but... Um, well, uh, Don was not associated. Well, he, he was the creator, but he wasn't associated with Magna when I did it. Uh. So that was a different producer at the time. And then tequila but Oh, you know what? Yeah. The, um, God, I'm getting all these confused now. Okay. The beast with it, I think got it. No, because I, um, I guess I did get the full credit on that one. It's been so long ago. Cause now I'm thinking that since you brought up tequila and Benetti, I think I helped. Tommy write that episode a little bit, so I'm not sure I do see Tommy Thompson still. I'll have to ask him because I'm really confused at this point, but um a great great writer and a dear friend of mine, Tommy Thompson and I actually drove out to California together years ago and uh, and then yeah, <laughs> and the first time he was ever on the set of quantum leap, I believe was as my guest, and all on his own without by doing anything, certainly, he became one of their top writer-producers. Pretty amazing.
3: What was the process like for you with The Beast Within? Uh, did you have to go in and pitch the story idea and then get approval? And then what was the writing process like for you?
0: It's kind of funny because uh, I had, <laughs> you know, how Hollywood goes, I had pitched my one idea uh, that I had for the show to a producer that will go unnamed. and um, and I, But I got busy on another series, performing, acting in, in another show, and so I, I, I had no time to do anything else, but I was at the Hollywood Bowl to see one of Frank Sinatra's last concerts, and in front of me was a girl, an actress that I knew, and she said she was doing Quantum Leap, and because I knew everybody, I said, oh, which, which episode are you doing, and who's directing, and she started telling me the episode that I pitched,
6: <laughs>
0: and that was, that was kind of tough, but... Um, you know, Don makes sure he takes care of everybody, and um, I had this other opportunity to to write the Beast with him, which was a real a personal experience for me to write. I just felt very connected to. I was too young to fight in Vietnam, but I was very connected to the people that that did have to go, and so I was really intrigued by a, a few stories that I had read about, and I thought it would make for good uh, a big backdrop for for Scott's character.
3: How different was the final episode from what you wrote, if any?
0: It was fairly different. Um, I think, yeah, the biggest thing that changed was, I have to really go back in my brain, but I don't believe I actually put Bigfoot or a monster in my episode. And that got added. That was, you know, through the staff that got added, whatever wisdom they came up with to add that character. But I can remember... Scott being really unhappy about that. And, uh, and I, he thought I did it. He thought I was the one that put that in there. He felt like it wasn't true to the form. Um, I didn't tell him that wasn't I, but I remember him saying something to me about that. I mean, he was the protector of the, the storylines at that point. So I understood why he would have an issue. Um, it's just that I, I wasn't the one who added it. That was something, that was a decision that was made internally. But I agreed with Scott. I I wasn't, you know, it was more, it was meant to be more of the metaphor.
3: Watching it myself, I feel like it was almost put in there for just for the preview to get people to watch the next episode.
0: (laughs) I don't know. But I I respect, I respected Scott's opinion. I don't know if I felt the same way. But I think anybody who writes, you know, they, they always want to have their own words up there or whatever. But I also believe in, I believe in the the greater consciousness of the room and for lots of reasons, Um, but I'm just really glad that I had the opportunity to do it. It was a joy. Uh, the director I didn't know very well. I can't remember his name. And that was a disappointment to me. Not that he, not that he was a disappointment, but I knew all the other regular directors and I would have loved to have had that rapport offset. Um, and I didn't really get to enjoy that because he didn't really know me. And, you know, the, the life of the director can sometimes be the life of a journeyman. And so they're just trying to make sure they get the show in on time and all that. But, um, yeah, so I kind of missed that. I was spoiled by knowing and loving some of the other directors on the show. The regulars.
3: What was it like to work with uh, Scott Bagula, Dean Stockwell? How did they treat you, and uh, did it change after being on the show so many times?
0: Yes, um, with Dean Stockwell, who I believe is of Italian origin. I, I never really looked into it, but, uh, but the only thing I can remember is he was—he was a little with me. He's kind of cool with me. He's kind of a cool character in general, but uh, and cool in the in, in the right sense of the word. But he was extremely warm and open with my mom and dad who came to visit us one time and so I guess he felt uh, some sort of connection and maybe there was an Italian roots connection there I don't know but um, I was delighted that he was kind and warm to my parents um, Scott was very good to me on set and a great leader he taught me how to be a great leader I learned a lot from him so when it was when I had a show in the future or if I am you know, I always followed Scott's model I'll never forget him. Just he worked. He worked with everybody. He helped everybody on set. Uh, some, on some days, I would see him, you know, pulling the cables across, the electrical cables, whatever he, he could do. He was a great captain of that show. So I'm, I'm, I wish him well, and he deserves all the, the good things that are happening for him. He's got some good things happening lately too.
3: Yeah, he's got uh, what NCIS New Orleans, I think, mm-hmm. coming up. Yeah, yeah. Going back to Frank LaMotta, was there a difference in your character, or if any, what was the difference between Jimmy and Deliver Us from Evil? Did you feel the character was different a couple years later? Without
0: having just watched the shows, I'm going to give a stab at that. I mean, obviously, there was the whole psychological pull behind the scenes of um, the Evil Leaper. So... No, I I think that, you know, I was trying to show maybe a realistic version of what could happen to people over the course of time. Uh, the initial character really resonated with me. Just, you know, he was in... He was in a no-win situation everywhere he went, just trying to help raise his brother, and it was just a super-empathetic, sympathetic character. That was... Meant a lot to me, but it, it also meant that character meant a lot to the fans of the show. And, um... And so did Bradley. Bradley was, you know, he had all of their hearts. Scott was brilliant in it. And um, I think the thing that resonates for me is when I was a kid, there was a, a boy who was retarded. I'll just use the word. And then he would come to our street and he would want to show, he was older than us, and he would want to show us his monster magazines because that was the cool thing. And when he would appear on our dead end street, the first mother who saw him on the street, would shout and scream, and all the mothers would yell for all of us to come in. Get in the house! Get in the house! Because they were afraid it was contagious.
3: It seems kind of silly nowadays.
0: Silly and sad and just frightening. It's frightening and sad. So I really had that memory with me the whole way through that show. And um, the show took place in the early 60s, so it was something that was really close to me and pain it was a painful memory for me to think about it, especially now. Um, but yeah, so Frank LaMotta really resonated with me and he was not getting the support of his wife at home. He was mom and dad had passed on, he's got this brother, he's trying to get him work. He's trying to keep his own job and then he fails at that. So he had a lot going against him. It's a great character to play. And Jimmy Whitmore Jr. directed it. Um we had a great cast. And everybody did their jobs. Everybody looked good in it. He did Michael Madsen, ultimately. (laughs) And then but the next one, I remember, I I can't remember the ladies' names offhand. I'll say Renee uh, was one of them. But uh, really great actresses. I can't remember the name of the the lady that played the evil leaper. And then she had her Dean Stockwell version, uh, the English actress. And they were a lot of fun. Um, And yet, you know put Scott's character in a real bind again. And um anyway, so I don't know if I can make a proper comparison without you having just watched the final episode was the trip.
3: Were you honored to be invited to do that in the, in the last episode? Like, did yeah, you... very
0: much so. Very much so. And to be invited in this, if you're part of the family at that point. And uh, it was so nice to do it with Bradley. And yeah, it was such a... Uh, you yeah, know, Don, Don's going to push the boundaries in like, a wonderful psychological drama. And, yeah, it was different than what I expected, for sure. Very different. The Sopranos needed one like that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an opinion on the ending? Uh, a lot of the fans are split between whether they love it or hate it.
0: Um, I think I would be in favor of it. I think most of us have a theme about never being able to get home, you know. And I think there's some reality in there for all of us.
3: So. And Deliver Us From Evil, when you walk in and your character thinks Jimmy was just trying to rape Connie. Was that difficult for you to, I don't know, it was very, it looked very emotional. And uh, was that hard for you to do that scene?
0: Well, I'm going to say yes. I have to go back to my years ago, that is. But anytime there's a scene like that, it's really, really hard. And I think what's, you have to remove yourself from the 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 viewer. And you know, I have to go into the body of the person who's having those feelings. And then I have to stay there for a duration of time until we get that shot completely. So I gotta be, uh, I like to think that he's, the actor stays warm to the subject matter so that he can launch or she can launch into it. I heard with Heath Ledger on Batman that he would be telling jokes in the chairs and then just go up to the set. But I do think that uh, technically from an actor's point of view, even though I feel he did a genius job, sometimes it's a little different. Sometimes it's, you have to, really stay in the world of the character for a while longer in order to find the real truth there maybe a more subtle truth
3: um do you remember uh, I know it's 25 years ago probably at this point maybe was that scene filmed in uh, like two different days on two different days did you have to go back
0: I couldn't tell you what happened last week right? <laughs> so I don't have no I have no idea I'm
3: the same way so no idea. I know what you're saying you have been in so many great television series that everybody has seen you made the rounds in the nineties in the sci-fi and the shows that I watched anyway. So you're very recognizable to me like sliders. That was a good part. You did where you played the bad guy in virtual slide. Uh, I'm sure our listeners would uh, not be happy with me if I didn't ask you about Sequest DSV.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yes, that was amazing. Tommy Thompson, I mentioned earlier um, was offered the helm of running that show and I, there was a lot of politics going on behind the scenes uh, between Tommy and Loan, so it's too much information to give out. But um Tommy wanted to put a character on the show that had a sense of humor, and in particular, his sense of humor, which is phenomenal. Um uh, And he knew that I could deliver that. But I literally, I went to him and said, Tommy, don't do this because you know, make sure you get in there, get comfortable. I, didn't, I truly did not want him thinking about me. I wanted him... To have a, a great ride because Steven Spielberg handpicked them for the, for the journey. You know, it was quite an honor. Um, but he was convinced that the show needed some levity. And so he wanted to bring me in as sort of an instant pulver character. That began one of the, the hardest, <laughs> most challenging audition processes I ever went through because there was a camp of people who wanted anybody but John D'Aquino for that role because I was associated with Tommy. And some of those people that were in that camp or higher up, I was actually shooting on the set of Quantum Leap during this process. So I was in one of those episodes. I can't remember if it was the final one. It must have been the final one. had could be. And um, so I was on the Universal lot anyway. And it got so contentious that um, about three days before the audition, NBC calls up my agents and said, please make sure John knows he'll have some friends in the room. That's how ugly it got. <laughs> Never heard that one before, and uh, and then when I walked into the room, there was a, it was a, I knew, I knew at least five of the people that didn't want me, and there was a handful, I guess it did. And I was sitting there, in in the lobby, and watching everybody walk into the room. There was about seventeen people in that room that day, and I remember thinking, "Wow, if I don't let go of this anger, um, you know, this this feeling of being hurt by what people have said, people don't even know me." I don't have a chance of making anybody smile in that room. So I literally spent that time in the lobby just um, kind of almost in a prayer like forgiving people, forgiving those people and just making peace with them before walking in. And I was able to walk in lightly and I looked people in the eye and I called them by their first names to make sure that they understood that I was a human being. And uh I was very relaxed. I had a great time in the room, and it ultimately came my way, and I found out while on set. I remember telling Scott about it, as a matter of fact. Yeah.
3: I'm glad you got that. That show and uh, I want to say Star Trek Next Generation were the two shows back then I couldn't miss.
0: Oh, that's really nice of you to say.
3: What character do you get recognized for the most? Because you've done so many things.
0: Well, ironically, well, a lot of people from the Seinfeld episode, all the aficionados of Seinfeld, that'll happen. My character's name is Todd Gack, and some people will call me Gack. Hmm. <laughs> the mailman, a yeah, substitute mailman one day, goes, you're Gack, you're Gack, man. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes. And, uh, and then a lot of people from Quantum Leap, but quite frankly, it's mostly... Uh, the kids, and they all know me as the President of the United States from Cory in the House, which is a Disney show, which was the spin-off of That's So Raven. And Rondell Sheridan, the comedian who, actor, director, great guy, Um, he played the father of Raven on That's So Raven, and he was also on this program. And he said to me, get ready, your life's gonna change. And I was actually teaching, I have an acting school, and I was teaching 18 and above up until that time. And afterward, everything changed. I started getting invited to teach a lot of kids. I first—I remember visiting some schools. I think I was in the Midwest, and the show had been on for a little while. And this group of kids came up to me and said, "Can we hug you?" And I'm like, uh, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> you know, so I'd never—I uh, never anticipated that I would be embraced by children in that way, and it was really fantastic. And I was uh, so there's been a part of me that wanted to do to be a little league coach, to be a a life coach for kids. But I couldn't understand how it was going to to really happen outside of my own kids. And uh, all of a sudden, in the last six or seven years, the school has been really blossomed, and we have a a really good school for young actors in L.A. We go from ages 6 to 26, basically. Um, We make movies. We literally bring in professional crews. We make original movies. We give a lot of kids uh, opportunity to learn. And we have a a large number of success stories. We have some kids that have their own shows. We just had um well, I can go on about that, but I'm not sure if I want to talk about some kids specifically, but we have kids that have their own shows one one or two have movie careers, one is about to have a major movie career um and so you know eventually you're gonna have your successes, I guess regardless but it it feels good and then it also feels good for those kids that will never be professional actors but love it. Um, and just, they really just want to learn the craft, and we try and introduce them to all aspects of the industry because I don't want them to turn out victims to just being actors. I want them to, you know, develop as writers, producers. I mean, I'll cheer the loudest when one of my kids becomes a studio executive. I'm going to really get a kick in on that one. But already, some of our students are having lunches together at the commissary, and that's pretty amazing.
3: Uh, How can people find out more about that?
0: Uh, I have a website johndiacrino dot net so you know I will say that it we we are a school for professionally minded kids, and we have kids coming in from around the world now actually, but um we're fun we're but we're but not easy, so you know we try and make sure that everybody understands that the goal is prime time or film, and so we're going we really try and have a have a very ambitious curriculum that that resembles the professional world of show business. So in addition to learning how to become an actor, you really, and this is some place where, oh boy, I stepped in it a lot of times. You have to learn set etiquette, set protocol. I will, you know, I can't go into it, but there was, there was about four incidents in my career where, um, I'll say very well established actors try to hurt my career. And I really feel that these were middle aged guys who were threatened on some level. It happens to ladies all the time. But I can remember it happening to me clearly and saying to myself, I will never be that person in my middle ages. And if anything, I will I will reach out. I will will do what I can because it's not easy and there's no manual for this. And we spend a lot of time trying to create some sort of manual for how to be. What's expected, be a good guest on set, et cetera,
3: et cetera. I was reading your biography, and I noticed it had said that one of your teachers uh, early on was Charles Nelson Riley. Yeah, could you tell me uh, more about your uh, relationship with Charles Nelson Riley and how amazing that must have been? <laughs>
0: uh, that was a gift from heaven. That's that's a very special man, and anybody who studied with him feels the same way I do, and we're all very blessed. A lot of us became teachers because of Charles, because he taught us initially: if you love the craft, the craft will love you back. And and we all did. We never even asked about when do we get a job. We just devoted everything to our classes, to our work. And then eventually the work would find us because we became talented. We all developed our skill sets. There's been a lot of people that became actors, writers, producers, directors. As a matter of fact, John Hawks. And he has a great career, but he was the guy in the back of the class who hardly, you know, came in periodically and he would always do something a little bit tweaked, a little bit different. And, uh, I think it, was, it probably took him the longest, but he's gone really far subsequent to that. Um, Charles was the most giving person you've ever met. He was, he rooted for the underdog. We could be invited to a meal with luminaries not only stars, but luminaries from any any part of the world. And we'd be invited to these dinners, too. We'd always want to incorporate us. And he would celebrate you. If he just met you, he would celebrate you. And at a table at the finest restaurant in Beverly Hills, he would bring the waiter over and make sure that everybody at the table knew who this waiter was or who the, who the boss boy was or who the waitress was. Tell me about yourself, you know, and he would celebrate that person. And make sure everybody understood that this person had value. This person was special and important as well. It was amazing. Um, and a gifted teacher class was like church. That's all I can say. You know, he would disarm you with, he was the funniest human I'd ever met. And I, I got to hang out with some great ones and the great comedians wanted to hang out with him. He would make them laugh and he would disarm you with his humor and then he would just level you with his passion. And so we learned both. We learned both.
3: Do you have any uh, little funny stories or anything that happened on the set of your time on Quantum Leap that you could tell the listeners? Mm, Let me see here.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, Okay, there is a few funny stories. Well, it, it actually didn't happen on the set. It happened as a result of Quantum Leap. I was proposed to... Um, by somebody on a bluff in England who <laughs> who yeah, really liked my character. Um yeah. So and it was uh I had gone to a Quantum Leap event, I won't say where, and uh well, I guess I said England and <laughs> I ended up getting proposed to. And that was that well, was nice. It was nice. I didn't accept, but it was nice. <laughs> and uh yeah, so thank you Quantum Leap.
3: <laughs> Sounds flattering. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank
0: you. Thank you so
3: much. Thank you so much. Honor talking to you.
0: Be well.
3: You okay. be well. Thank you.
7: Thank you, John. Thank you, Albie. Now, as promised, here's our interview with Laura Harrington. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Laura. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, thank you. I'm happy to be
7: here. Well, you have the distinction of being one of only a handful of guest actors who got to reprise a role on Quantum Leap, that of Connie LaMotta in the season two episode, Jimmy, and again in the season five episode, Deliver Us From Evil. So can you tell us a little bit how you landed the role and how you got involved with Quantum Leap?
1: Well, I auditioned for it, and I remember really identifying with the character, liking the family. I thought it was really human episode. So the first episode I was cast in, and then I think it was fans. People really liked Connie and that fantasy and that and, and the episode of Jimmy. And I think that's why that role was reprised.
7: Oh, really. And I, I imagine playing Connie was kind of walking a tricky line because you were ostensibly the antagonist of that first episode of Jimmy. where And you had to treat mm-hmm. Jimmy very poorly. Yet you had to come yeah. across as sympathetic. So I, I think you pulled it off, but... How did this or did any of this factor into how you approached the character?
1: A lot of it did. And I think, you know, I was really blessed because um, John DeQuino was so... He was such a good husband. (laughs) He was so attentive to Connie. (laughs) So it was easy to be that side of her and, you know, loving her family and loving her son. And then having so much fear of the other... But the funny thing was that Brad Silverman, who played Jimmy, was um, instantly not fooled by me being a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he, every time I came onto the set, he'd say, I love Laura, and Laura loves me, and all that sort of mean <laughs> So it was just almost impossible when he was in the room to sustain that character, which was... Um, so that was the biggest challenge. But I really like the way um, Connie tries so hard to hold on to her family and to protect her son. And um, I don't know, I just really identify with that character, the hostility towards the new and having to open to something different. Anyway, I thought it was a neat role to play.
7: Yeah. And I, you mentioned that chemistry that you had with John. I mean, you guys really did seem like a married couple in that kitchen scene, especially. And yeah. I just, did you guys like just naturally click that way? Because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not odd, but it's rare that you see two right. people that just jibe so naturally on screen.
1: It really surprised me seeing the episode over again, just how much of a connection there was. And I think he was really, I think we set up the relationship that way that he that he was extremely generous to me, and to his obviously to his brother, and I was the one that was um, holding back. So it created that sort of nice tension between. Obviously we were attracted, and obviously there was a, a really solid relationship between us. And at the same time, it wasn't easy. There was sort of an uneasiness, and I thought our the way we related to each other reflected that.
7: Yeah, it came across very well on screen. And like I said, it was it, it was something you, you guys pulled off terrifically. But how about um, working opposite Scott and Dean? What was that like?
1: Well, they're just so, I mean, the, both of them um, are just such nice people. That's what I remember most strongly is just how, again, very generous, very warm, very enthusiastic. And I never felt, you know, I only felt, Like, um, they were there to make things as easy as possible on their, on their fellow actors and were completely obviously creators of the story in so many ways. So, um, it just felt like very comfortable in their world.
7: Well, that's good. We hear that a lot, especially, um, about Scott, just what a, what a generous guy and what a great guy he was to work with. Um, I, I don't think I've ever heard of a... Of a show where so many guest actors universally praise the staple actors in the series. And that's, that's, that's something yeah. that's, that's universal to my experience of interviewing Quantum Leap alumni. And it's, it's always nice to hear, you know, because it's nice to know that the show that you love and, and the person that you loved watching on that show was actually a genuinely good guy in real life, too.
1: Well, I think it's, you know, the show they chose to do is really reflective of them, that it's really about making life better and really on the set they were the same way just <laughs> making everyone around them feel good making the intention of the show feel like it was going to be a positive experience in terms of i don't know there's just never any dark energy at all
7: that's that's great and
1: that can happen on any set you know where where people especially the stars of the show can feel like they're hostile toward incoming actors
7: Right. Well, I um, yeah, I'm glad it didn't happen here. And it, it came across on screen. Everybody seemed to gel so well. And before I called you, I had a little bet with myself. Being a New Yorker, mm-hmm. I I absolutely yes. adore Connie's New York accent. She sounds like she's straight out of the Bronx, <laughs> right? and I'm straight out of the Bronx. And I was wondering if that's something that you brought to the role since the family, I think, was supposed to live in California, in Oakland.
1: Yeah, no, I did. I just figured that she was a transplant.
7: <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I love the scene about your mother's platter.
1: So. <laughs> She's part of this Italian family, you know. Family. I just saw them going out to California to kind of get their little house and their <laughs> new life going. And yeah, and I had just been recently, just before um, that. I, I mean, I moved to from New York to California in the '80s, so that voice was really in my head.
7: Oh, okay, all right. So it was a little bit of a natural accent coming through. That's that's what I have to think. It just seems so natural to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can I can spot the fake ones from a mile away. So, um, <laughs> thank you for indulging me on that one. But uh, were you? No, 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 no. <laughs> 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 Were you surprised when they called you back to reprise the role of Connie?
1: Yeah, I was completely surprised because that's the one thing about reprisals is that you know you've gone on and you've you, you haven't. You're kind of not thinking of picking up that character or seeing that family or being a part of it again, and then all of a sudden you're you're dropped in. It's kind of fun. It was a little bit like being in Quantum Leap.
6: Yeah,
7: you know,
1: I'm thinking, yeah. oh, I'm going back in time. <laughs> so yes, and I was disappointed that my character got stolen.
7: Yeah, no, that's that, that that that's an interesting wrinkle because did you have to approach Connie? As a different character in *Deliver from Evil*, since you were actually playing Aaliyah. Yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. And and it was yeah no it was a completely different you know she she's inhabited so she's not all the things that were sort of natural are now unnatural. Okay. Between you know within the marriage so, and it was just but but it was an interesting. Almost a little traumatic to be taken over by another woman,
7: right? <laughs> <laughs> so, like someone leaped into okay. you. Well, I, I guess I mean the, my natural question after that is, which version of the character did you like playing better, or do you have a preference?
1: I really liked, you know, I I liked that it was easier to play the um, the original Connie that character was a little, was easier to play only because she was um you know I just sort of fell into that world and w- wanted to create that family and felt very safe and at home and then all of a sudden it was uh we were in crisis and I wasn't myself
7: yeah yeah big time With
1: no chance of preserving thing
7: <laughs> yeah well it's funny because um once it, it I was I was kind of sad that we never got to see the original Connie um, after Sam discovered Aaliyah, there was never like when she left. Yeah. When she left out, she, you know, the, I, I wanted the other Connie to come back. I wanted real Connie to be to be standing there saying what's going on or something. And I felt, um, you know, that's that's more fan service kind of thing for me. Yeah. But would you have liked to have been able to do that?
1: Oh yes, I think it would have been better. I do. I think we should have. We should have real. It would have been fun to see the whole cycle.
7: Yeah right. Well, you know, maybe maybe one day we'll do an audio drama. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure do it <laughs> out. <another
1: one. laughs> we'll, we'll jump back in time yeah, and right. redo
7: that whole thing. <laughs> we'll leap we'll leap back yet again to Connie. Connie, actually, it's funny you're the um you're our Jimmy trifecta for this podcast because we've spoken to both John and Brad, and now we have you. Oh yeah, really? Yeah, they've both appeared on the podcast. Well, you just mentioned that when. You got the role on Quantum Leap. You had uh, recently moved from New York in the 80s out to California. So Connie's journey Mm -hmm. that you gave her, her backstory that you gave her kind of mirrored yours. Can you tell us about that journey? How did you get started in acting and what led you to make the leap out to the West Coast?
1: I got started in acting because I went to Boston University for theater and then um, the first Job I got took me to New York because I got um, I was on Broadway with Al Pacino in oh. Richard the Third, and um, and then from there I did a couple of really well received independent films when independent films weren't widely seen. Mm-hmm. So both of them I starred in, and they they both got really great reviews, et cetera. And so then the next thing was um, I was flown several times back and forth from. New York to Los Angeles to audition for films, and finally, one time it was just too cold in New York. And so,
7: yeah, we've been there. We've all been there.
1: I didn't. I didn't go back, and that was and that's how I got to California. It was just like the weather was fine, and it was February, and the prospect of going back and uh, in my cold apartment was too tough. So that's a really, I didn't, I, I mean, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that it was clear that um, there, were, there was a lot of work for me out here. And so I was really interested in being in film.
7: And you kind of did it in a big way because shortly after Quantum Leap, anyway, shortly after the episode aired, you appeared in a starring role in the classic film What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Yeah. And that was opposite Johnny Depp and Leo DiCaprio. So what was that like?
1: That was fabulous it was really kind of heaven because um Lassa Hallstrom, holstrom well first of all you there's a lot of that movie you don't see because Lassa shot a comedy tragedy so we shot a lot of very funny scenes and um in the end because of the nature the the way the the film unfolded he sort of made it a more serious film so and and then Lassa really loves improvisation so We just had a good time with each other. You know, we would be called into scenes and just, you know, we could wing it. We were following, obviously, very carefully a script, but we would also have these moments that we could just play. And I think that just, you know, for actors, that's really heaven, that you have sort of a creative freedom, and especially with those actors. And it was amazing to be there just to watch Leo become... I mean, he was so extraordinary in that role. And every day, you know, he was hanging out with a lot of kids who who were just like the kid he was playing in, in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. So um just to watch him be such a perfect mimic and then bring real emotion to it. It was it was really amazing. And then on the then there's Johnny who is just probably the most sensitive and receptive actor. And then of course, Darlene, who is no longer alive, which makes me very sad. And
7: she played the mother, right?
1: Yeah, the mother. Yeah. 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 And she was really exceptional, very warm, very bright, really courageous, very inspired all of us, really.
7: Yeah, she 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 was amazing in that role. And what I loved about that movie is that a you wanna you wanna say these days be cynical and say, Wow, that's that's Oscar bait. But I think that was more in the vein of independent film tackling sensitive mm-hmm. issues in a quirky way before yeah. that became mainstream. And I mean, exactly. you guys were r- right in the sweet spot of that. And that, that film is just exceptional. It just holds up on every level.
1: Yeah. It surprised me how well it, it holds up. And then it was also, you know, it was also being out in Austin, Texas and the mu- I mean, it was, it was, it was just a gorgeous experience from beginning to end. Because the music was great, in the, at night we had really short days because um, Sven Nykvist was shooting the film, and so um, and he was in the 70s, so they just had to keep days really confined, which is rare on a film. So we actually did things like got sleep and <laughs> 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 I could go out in the evening and have dinner, and you know, so it was quite it was quite nice.
7: Oh, if we can, I want to cycle back even further than Quantum Leap. Mm -hmm. Cycle back even further than Gilbert Grape, and um, okay, just indulge me here. I jumped. At at the chance to interview you, because this is the third podcast I've hosted, Quantum Leap podcast. But before this, I hosted a podcast called Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, which was about time travelers trying to prevent the Kennedy oh assassination. God. And yeah. I po- I, po- I I hosted another one called Castle Rock TV podcast, which was about Stephen King works. And right. on both of those podcasts, we covered things that you appeared in. We mm-hmm. did a Time Loops episode on 1122 uh, about the short film 1201. Right, and my partner nominated. Yeah. That the was, Oscar, nominated night, right?
1: Oscar Academy Award.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Academy Award, right. And my partner Skip and I, we're watching it, and Kerwood Smith is in it, and we're talking about it. And I said, do you recognize that actress? And he said, I- I'm not sure. And he's a huge Quantum Leap fan. And I said, close your eyes and listen to her speak. And he said, oh, my God, that's Connie LaMotta. <laughs> so, so we saw you in that. So I'd, I'd like to ask you about shooting that because I know it was really well received. It 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 was nominated. And then when we did our Castle Rock podcast, we did a whole show about Maximum Overdrive. And there you were again, front and center. I said, there's Laura. <laughs> Must be a new podcast. Here's Laura. Here she is again. So... If if you would, I mean can can you speak to, to either of those projects?
1: Yeah, I mean twelve oh one was really I kind of got a lot of roles in a cluster. You know, so obviously it was just one day of shooting. But I I knew when I met Kirby that he was such an exceptional actor. And the script was really you know, it was just well written. It was really an exciting piece and and, and it's funny because I did wish it were longer or more involved or and it did become Groundhog Day, so it, it got its day in the in the sun. But it was really lovely experience. And and then the and then uh, in terms of Stephen, that was a big deal that I was cast. I always feel a little guilty because I don't think I was great in that <laughs> movie. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, partially because it was just so unfamiliar with me for me. The I'd been on the stage and. Doing all these sort of serious roles and and um, it was working with special effects and stuff. It was just not. I, I was a little uncomfortable. And I, uh, as I say, I feel like I should apologize to all the fans out there, but I did <laughs> love. <laughs> I did love working with Stephen a lot, and he was. Uh, you know, that was his first time directing anything, mm, and right. and he was. Uh, you know, he was nervous. He used to start every day. With his arms around his family, they would do this sort of little huddle. It was really charming. <laughs> and um, it was amazing. I, now now looking back on it, I just think it's revolutionary because here we are. We're at the moment when all of our trucks and cars will be running on their own and hackable.
6: Right. <laughs> right, and
1: completely hackable. You think you know, they, that piece wasn't in there.
7: Was Maximum Overdrive your first leading role? In a motion picture? No,
1: that was my first leading role in sort of a major motion picture. I had done two leading roles in independent films before then that had gotten a lot of critical attention, but no one ever saw, which was sad. It was really sad. I mean, that was that was the day when there really wasn't a venue for independent Mm film. They just didn't, you know, they didn't distribute them.
7: Are those films available now for our listeners to to pick up if they want? Well,
1: I hope, you know, maybe your listeners will um, encourage them to be released. I think both of them had similar problems. One was called City Girl by Martha Coolidge, and um, it's her first film. And then the other is Dark End of the Street um, by Jan Eagleson. And that film was reviewed insanely. I mean, really... Vincent Canby wrote about it four times. I mean, people really loved my performance in that film.
7: I recall doing my research. Um, some of the, some I just saw some promo stills. You looked like a tough street kid.
1: Yeah, I that. was really a tough street kid. Yeah. and um, the, the the thing that made that film exciting was that everybody that was my age, all the older actors were professionals, but everybody that was my age had grown up in uh, project housing in Cambridge so they were the real thing and then there was me who had to be be the, be them and and blend with them and so that was really exciting it was an incredible challenge and i i loved doing it so but yeah that film doesn't it remains undistributed because at the time it was made for so little money and the music that was put on the film i think they don't really mm. they didn't have the rights for so I, I think see, that until they kind of find music for it or re-put music on it, it can't be made public.
7: Isn't that funny? That's a big issue that Quantum Leap fans have about the release of the series on DVD is the fact that they just couldn't afford the rights to all the music that appeared in the show. And there's a lot of music replacement. And, uh, man, that, that issue holds up more than what we love. It holds up a lot of stuff. That's just an odd symmetry. It is really
1: odd. And it seems like it should be somehow fixable. Right? It does. It seems like, but that is the shame about that film because, you know, it's a small film, but it's really a powerful film even, even now.
7: I hope one day we're able to see it. And that was your first film. I mean, we can fast forward to one of your most recent films. You got to rejoin Al Pacino yeah. on, on the big screen instead of on stage in Devil's Advocate. Did you guys, I, I'm trying to remember your scene. I remember that you were in one of the court scenes. Did you have a scene with, with Al Pacino in yeah, the film? Yeah, in the
1: court. We were together, but my scenes were mostly with Keanu.
7: Okay. Okay. And what what was that like? Because that that was a huge, huge hit at the time. Big movie.
1: Yeah. It was really... What's funny is that's where my writing career began, because I was writing a film about Fidel Castro, actually, for Taylor. Hmm. And then since I was working with him, he said, will you play this role in the movie? Um so I came to New York and I was writing <laughs> between takes, you know. So that was really funny. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was and you're doing talking about the director Taylor Taylor Hackford, yes, sorry. Yeah,
7: Taylor Hackford, right. And um I guess yeah, that's that's a perfect segue because I did want to cycle out. I mean, you've you've since then or very soon after that, it seems like you've turned your talents to writing. So how did you make that transition?
1: Well, it's such a weird story. Because I wasn't really a writer, you know, I didn't write, I didn't write journals or, and I just wasn't a, it wasn't a daily activity for me at all. And then it was actually during What's Eating Gilbert Grape that um, I kind of started seeing films. I would have them, you know, and I would think about them. And then I think, wow, I'm having this film. I, I need to find a writer. And someone said, no, no, I think that means you are a writer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to a writing class and I I sort of thought oh, I'm never going to do this and the writing teacher thought oh, she's never going to do this I, I did know how to fix everybody else's films and then the writing the, the writing teacher one day said to me you know, screamed at me that I couldn't just come and hang out in the class <laughs> I actually had to write something <laughs> so I did I wrote this, one of these visions I had and I, I read it and someone said well I, I wouldn't this is a class where people would rip each other apart, and they said, I wouldn't change a single word. Oh, wow. So then I thought, well, that's something. And I went to my agency, and I kind of snuck downstairs to the writer's reps whom i would never seen before. And I said, hey, will someone read this? And then the next day, I was signed as a writer, and then my very first professional job, I wrote the... Script for Taylor, Taylor you know, I had written that on spec. But my first professional job was working for Martin Scorsese as a producer on a film called Mississippi Mud, which has actually gone through an incredibly long journey and looks like it's going to be made in the next year.
7: Okay, and what? How long ago was that? Or when you say it's been on an incredible journey, that was
1: a long, long time ago. That was so long ago.
7: Do, do you care to elaborate? Or? yeah, yeah, I
1: think I can elaborate. So what happened was I wrote it for Miramax, but then Miramax got purchased by Disney, and then it, the whole project got buried there. And then the Weinstein's left, and a, an investor bought all of the Miramax remaining Miramax library. And then uh, an investor so loved my script that he went and sat down with them and pulled the script out so that they could produce it. So that was like, it was buried for almost 15 years.
7: Wow. That's, you know, you hear Hollywood stories. and <laughs> Unfortunately, that seems to be, that seems to be a lot more common than you would think, right? I'm, I'm amazed that anybody can get anything produced in that sense. Yeah.
1: Well, usually when something gets, you know, when, when a studio goes down or there's a sale or Usually at that point, it becomes impossible. Things that aren't produced just never see the light of day. So this was sort of a miracle. It was really very exciting that it's happening. So, And then from that point on, so the other reason why I started writing is because I had twins. And um, I didn't want to be on sets and traveling a lot. So I started writing and I was just lucky that it was a career that worked out. And so I've really been writing solidly. My kids are... 22. So for 22 years.
7: Wow. So tell us um, if you'd like, what is your favorite writing project that you've worked on?
1: Oh, well, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you that I have two different types of films that I work on either. I like to do kind of really serious um, dramas about real people. For the most part, I get hired to do that often, right? that's the film, a project i'm working on right now and or i like to do huge fantasy and in, invented worlds and so i have t- kind of a split personality that way for example i was i'm just being talked to about doing um series about a book called weave world
7: clive barker yeah weave world mhm Oh, clive barker fans listen up and and <laughs> rejoice
1: <laughs> it will be a lot of fun, that's all I can say. I look at that sort of thing and I think, yes, this is me. Right. <laughs> Needless to say, there are several films and projects that I've I've written or am developing about big sci-fi and fantasy projects.
6: Is
7: there any more you can tell us about Weave World? Is it just in its initial stages? Do you have a projected date on that? No, no, or? it's
1: in its extremely initial stages, so... But it is something that, you know, is a possibility. It's something I'm looking at right now, and and um, and I really like the material a lot.
7: I also understand that you're working on a screenplay now for the same company that produced the award-winning movie Crash. Yes. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, it's a film based on actually a Yale law student's thesis about something that I never knew about called The American Plan. Which was a great idea of rounding up women during World War One, so they wouldn't infect soldiers with STDs. But it was also part of that whole eugenics project of taking certain people out of the gene pool. So they just thought they would eliminate. You know, it's the same. It's that same crowd that's always trying to um, regulate sexuality. And so they, they imprisoned women, but not by the hundreds or the thousands, but the, the hundreds of thousands. And, and it's something that I never knew about. But in his particular case, I'm following one particular woman because she actually sued them. She went to court. And so because her trial exists, you, you can see the detail of, you know how she was, she was absolutely not sexually experienced in any way she was just targeted because her father had died. So, you know, a woman without a man in the house could go wayward. So they, but these women were destroyed. They were put into these detention centers and then the treatment was, you know, weekly injections of mercury. So you can imagine what that would do to a body. And then, um, so I wrote it like, you know, I'm writing it like a horror story, just the horror of being targeted because you have pretty curls or someone's attracted to your smile or, you know, for minor things and then truly losing um, everything valuable in your life. And of course they would come out of these detention centers and be labeled as, as whores and therefore be able to unable to get work or, you know, so it was truly devastating uh, in her case, though, but the, the, the big shocking part of this story is that, um, well, maybe I shouldn't reveal the shocking part. I won't.
7: Oh, no, that's it. You hear that, listener? So you're going <laughs> to have to wait for the shocking reveal. Do you have a tentative name for the film? Is it called The American Plan? Or? No, it's,
1: right now it's called The Trials of Nina McCall, but I don't think that will be its end title. I'm not sure. But that, that that's the name of the book. And uh It's really fascinating.
7: You'd think that something like this would have been more widely covered. Is this a historical or an epic in history that's just now starting to see a little bit of light thrown on it? How was the – speaking writer to writer, what was the research like on this? Because I know you probably had to dig up a lot of disturbing stuff.
1: Well, I was blessed because the writer, the author of the thesis, he really kind of – he landed on his discovery of the American plan because – of looking at the trial, you know, these trials in American history. Mm. And then he did this massive amount of research. So he was thinking, well, is it just in this one, this was in a little teeny town in Michigan. Um, was it just in this one little town? And then he, as he starts to research, you, you realize it was literally in every state, virtually every town across the country, especially in, and in, in major cities, And um, there's a lot of documentation that he uncovered, so I was able to look at real life stories of um, a lot of the women who were imprisoned. And it's just you know, and then it gets it gets ever worse if they're women of color of any kind. It was open season on women. People, you know, if you had trouble with your wife, you could get her incarcerated. Just accuse her of being loose in any way, and then she could be incarcerated or. So women were rounded up for very different reasons and horrifying reasons. And you just don't know, you know, what I think is shocking is, yeah, these stories just have been untold in American history. I never knew about it, but that's because really zero. I I mean, I think until he started doing this research, no one knew about it.
7: It's both fascinating and horrifying. Yeah. It's, it's, it has potential. That's an explosive potential for a project like that. I hope it progresses and we get to see it.
1: Well, I think, you know, I think Kathy Schulman is a go-getter, and I'm writing a great script. So I think it has a high potential of being made and seen. Certainly the lead leading roles are fantastic. Great parts.
7: So that's a fascinating project. Are you working on anything else?
1: Well, I just recently wrote a, wrote a series that is getting some legs about Pirate Reed, who is um, was a you know the documented in the, again in the historical record was a female pirate, although she wasn't seen, she wasn't known by other pirates as a woman. She was completely known as a man. And what's fascinating about her is that um, she kind of turns that gender issue on its head because she didn't choose to be a man. She was an illegitimate child, and her mother's real husband died in war. Her brother, who was le- le- the legitimate child, died of the flu, and then her mother was desperate. So she went to her, the grandmother and had her little girl dressed as the boy. So she grew up playing a boy from childhood, And then she just took that into adulthood. So she became a major soldier. She fought both in the infantry and the cavalry and at sea. And then finally she goes pirate. So she's she's just a formidable and fascinating character. And so I kind of designed the series in a way that we've never seen pirates, which is really more, it's more like a prison movie in a sense that instead of making them swashbuckling, you know, fantasy figures, really talking about the real people. And what they were really like. A lot of, you know, for example, a lot of pirates went to sea because they were gay. And if you stayed on land, you'd be hung. Or, you know, they're counterculture in many ways. They're really fascinating people. And it really makes for a great, great series. It's very exciting.
7: So do you envision this as, as a limited series yeah. or as an ongoing series? As a limited,
1: well, it's a limited series, but probably... it it probably will take two years to tell the story.
7: Okay. Well, listen up HBO. (laughs) (laughs) Game of Thrones is ending. You're going to need something good. And this sounds like it.
1: (laughs) Anyway. So those are the, those are kind of the two things I've been working on this year.
7: Well, that's great. I mean, that's, they're all so amazing. Um, if you have just off topic, if you have books that you can recommend that I read about either of these things, because I'm a big reader and both of these things seem like really fascinating.
1: Yes, you can read, um, the Ballad of Mary Reed is what I based the series on. It is extremely beautifully researched. so And, and um, it just gave me a vision of pirates in a way I just had never imagined, ever. So when I read the book, I got very excited about doing the series. So I wrote the first episode, which everybody's wowed by. But if you want to read this book, you'll learn a lot about this particular pirate ship and uh the captain which is Ra- his name is Rackham and he's actually the pirate that um Johnny based his character on. He was very colorful. Oh, really? Yeah, he oh. loved to wear he loved to wear dresses and crazy jackets <laughs> and uh I call I I just he was blonde. He had like wives maybe 50 wives around the world <laughs> and and uh, so i call him the kurt cobain as, <laughs> he was very much a rock star and smart
7: there you go. keep that in your mind's eye right <laughs> makes it makes it for a fun fun writing exercise then that's yeah, no, that's no, good no, that's, i mean I like he's that. such a
1: fascinating character yeah. so but then and then i also just love the idea that you know when you he didn't emphasize this as much, but I really became obsessed with it because you think even now, if you're trans in any way or and you're discovered, you're killed so often or raped or something horrible happens. So the fact that she was able to be in in war and on the tight and this, these small ships and, and remain in disguise is f- fascinating to me.
7: I have one more pivotal question oh. about your entertainment career. Yes. Did they make you sing in cop rock?
1: Yes. Well, no. (laughs) Really? In cop cop rock, rock, I had a great song. And they hired me because I sang. And I sang that song. But then they um, handed it over to a true, like, real wailing rock star. And that is the one song (laughs) (laughs) in the show. But yeah, you know, I I got hired because I sang the song, and they kind of adjusted it all for me. And then they decided to go in another direction. I won't take that as an insult.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I just I'm just fascinated that series ever existed. So anytime I see someone in it, I just have to ask about it. So <laughs>
1: it was kind of crazy. It was a it was a cra it was kind of a crazy good time that show to be in it. But yeah. It was it
7: a was it's a little bit wacky, well. Do you have any other memories from your time on Quantum Leap that you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: Yeah. I remember Brad the most because it was such a significant thing and it still would be today. The more I think about it, it was just such a great thing that they hired um a guy with down syndrome to work on a, you know, on a professional basis. And he was very professional. And um So he, he, you know, he was unforgettable in that he really loved me. As I said, it made the shooting really difficult. (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) but even when, you know, he, if I took a break or whatever, he would want to talk to me and walk with me and um, share his life with me. And so I do remember him very strongly because I, I had never, you know, I had never met anyone like him. So he really changed my mind about a lot of things. I mean, I was really converted like Connie in the show in a way to truly paying attention on a deep level to the lives of people I might not have thought about before. And I remember, you know, that scene between the sheets, between John and I, we're kind of, I'm outside, and we're arguing.
7: Yes, yes. Right? That's yeah, in- That that's in Deliver Us From Evil. Yes.
1: Yeah. I just, there was something that we were shooting in San Pedro and we're right kind of in the cliffs over the sea. And there's this sort of, um, that, the kind of salty wind and the feeling of working with a really great, as they said, a really attentive, interesting actor. I don't know. I just, I remember feeling lucky, like really lucky mm. in that, in those moments, like, um, and I remember the sound of the sheet. So those things are are just central. And then the other thing that I had, I mean, I was very afraid about that last scene in Jimmy, just because it's so emotional.
7: You talk about the, the the Corey drowning scene. Yeah.
1: That was that's a. You know can
7: you elaborate? What 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 made you so afraid of it?
1: Well, just because you know you walk on a set, and in television things are really fast which is often why, you know, at least then, especially, you know, you're shooting really a lot of scenes a day and there's very little time. So either you have to, you know, you have to be emotionally prepared and go. So you, you don't have Mm -hmm. a lot of time to get it right. So, you know, obviously the idea of losing a child is such a, you know, when you think about it, it, it's so terrifying. So I wanted to capture that and I, and I just rewatched it and I felt, I felt like it was there I you know I I, I'm happy about that but it was really challenging because you know I didn't know if I was going to be able to walk on set and deliver that performance
7: well I think you did And uh, I think most of the Quantum Leap fans would agree. And I'm sure that that's a big reason why they called you back and called the whole cast of that episode back. It is really a fan favorite. So you hold a special place in Quantum Leap lore and in Quantum Leap fandom. Oh, I'm
1: so happy. So happy.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any any message for the Leapers out there?
1: I'm impressed that there are people that know the the show and love the show and... Our fans of the show, it really is nice to know.
7: Yeah, it's an enduring fandom, and it's, 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 it's a wonderfully kind and, and really enthusiastic fandom. Yeah. And it's just always a treat to be able to speak to people like yourself and just kind of share in it, you know? Yeah.
1: You know, I, I've gained a new appreciation for fandom because I realize that people really connect over the themes and things. And And when you think, as you say, when you think about that show, it is so loving when you kind of look back i would imagine its fans are similar i really love that they love the performance it means a lot
7: well laura thank you so much for being on the quantum leap podcast you've been very generous with your time and we really appreciate Mm,
1: it thank you
8: What a great interview. And next up, here is our interview with Brad Silverman.
5: Hello.
3: Hello, Mr. Silverman. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. Okay, uh, we just have a few questions for you. Um, First one is, can you tell us a little bit about your experience filming Quantum Leap?
5: My experience working with Quantum Leap was very exciting and it made me feel really good to know that people like Scott Bagel and Dean Stockwell were so wonderful to work with and get acquainted with. They taught me a lot about acting.
3: Out of your TV and film roles, which did you enjoy playing the most and why?
5: I loved all the TV and film roles I had, but my favorite movie I was in was I Am Sam. This movie sent out a message to the world that people with developmental disabilities can accomplish many things in life if given the chance.
3: Also, what was it like working with Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell?
5: Working with Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell was different because it went back in time, and the experience felt very different to me. Both of them were two different people playing different roles.
3: Were the reflection scenes with Scott difficult to set up?
5: It was difficult to set up because there were different kinds of reflections in the background, so that way we could see the interaction between two different people in the mirror.
3: What was your favorite episode of Quantum Leap that you appeared in, and why?
5: I really enjoyed working on the mirror image scene because I was able to see a different reflection of myself, which was really gut.
3: Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
7: Well, thanks to John, Laura, and Brad for taking time to speak with us. We hope you listeners enjoyed this LaMata family reunion my grandmother's hey. platter. Hey. My grandmother's platter. <laughs> she was there in spirit. I know. I, I, okay, we've looked back a lot since we got back from the break, but now it's time to look forward because... We have some new Patreon news. We have two new patrons to thank. Yeah! They are Anthony Carrillo and Jeff Kiska. Both Anthony and Jeff have joined us at the $5 Leaper level. Yes, Anthony and Jeff. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for your support. Joining us at the $5 level means that they get access to all of the extra content created exclusively for Patreon supporters at the $5 and above levels. That includes a brand new episode of Leaps elsewhere, where guys we debuted our dean episode with his appearance in the alfred hitchcock presents the landlady uh what was that from 1961
8: somewhere in there sure you you, you expect us to remember that's yes, the olden times <laughs> the black and white
9: days
7: <laughs> oldie days tv with a young young dean
9: yeah you get to hear uh, dean stockwell doing a british accent
8: a a matt dale approved british accent i will add (laughs) very true
3: that's the mustard
7: (laughs) indeed indeed matt takes the piss out of everybody else doing accents in that except for maybe the landlady herself she was pretty good too um, that was our first episode featuring work from Dean. If you guys don't know, Leaps Elsewhere is a show that we do over on Patreon in which we explore other projects that star Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell. And next up, we're doing Scott's series, Gung Ho, oh. which I know Allison and Matt are pretty gung
8: ho about. Oh, so excited. <laughs> There's going to be
9: changes, changes in your life.
8: If I could hold a tune, I would have
7: joined in. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a gung-ho series, (laughs) so we have that to look forward to. And there's also a new episode of Fangent in the pipeline. We recorded that a little while ago, so I'm in the midst of editing that as well. So plenty of great content to come on our Patreon feed. If you would like to check it out, that's patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. Thanks again to Anthony and Jeff. Thank you. It's so great to have two new patrons on board But Jeff didn't just stop with his donation. He also sent us an email. And if you guys don't mind, I will start this one off. All right. right. All right. Jeff writes, Dear Matt... Allison, Chris, and the rest of the QLP crew. I just wanted to let you all know how much I appreciate this podcast. I've been listening for a little over a year now, and have finally made the long overdue decision to become a patron. I figured since you've all given me so much entertainment, the least I could do is give a little something in return. This podcast has been a real source of joy for me, particularly this year, since working from home due to the pandemic has made life very monotonous. For the past few months, though, I've been listening to the qlp during my morning routine and it really helps me endure the never-ending cycle so thank you for literally giving me a reason to look forward to getting out of bed in the morning wow oh, so nice. praise indeed
9: all right uh, he continues one of the things i'm most grateful to you for is motivating me to start watching quantum leap again it was probably my favorite show when i was a kid but i hadn't watched it in years because i was afraid it might have aged poorly That was something that kind of broke my heart when, as an adult, I tried revisiting other shows I used to enjoy, like MacGyver and The A-Team. After hearing me listen to the QLP for so long, however, my wife decided to pick up the complete series box set, and after that I just had to go back and give the show another watch. Gotta say, I was really happy to see how well most of the episodes have held up. It's definitely a product of its time, but it's not nearly as cringy as I was afraid it would be. I think the thing I love the most about this podcast is the fact that the three of you not only clearly adore the show, but you genuinely seem to enjoy talking to each other about it. I also appreciate the different points of view you all bring to the table, probably because you each grew up in a different decade, which is the perfect dynamic for discussing a show about time travel. I often find that at least one of you has a perspective I can relate to, since I'm just a little older than the average of your collective ages – To be specific, the year I was born inexplicably flies across the screen the most times during Quantum Leap Season 2 to 5 intros, which always made me feel special as a kid.
8: Oh, Jeff, now you know how much I love the minutiae, so you know that's just triggered me into trying to figure out what year that is. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask Matt if you, knew, if you knew off the top of your head. <laughs> oh, I feel I should know. Um, certainly the the average age suggests that maybe you're closest in age to me. Anyway, Jeff continues. I'm really excited the podcast has reached season five since a lot of my favourite episodes are coming up. I'm also a bit sad, however, since it means you're getting close to the end. I know you've talked about your plans for what to do afterwards, such as the novels and comics, but I'm curious as to whether you'd ever consider revisiting the earlier seasons of Quantum Leap with the current crew. Don't get me wrong, I loved Albie and Heather's episodes, but there are some episodes in there that I'd really love to hear you three talk about. Plus, it seems kind of fitting, doesn't it? If you think of the QLP's timeline as a string, with one end representing Genesis and the other mirror image, and then you tie the ends together...
7: Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Anyway, thanks so much for the many hours of great entertainment and thought-provoking discussions. Not only to the three of you, but to everybody else involved in making this fantastic podcast. I look forward to each and every new installment, and I know I'm not the only one jeff kiska and then jeff sent me a small ps he writes after writing my very long email i listened to the feedback special and realized that i had one more thing to say that i wish i'd added as a ps to my original message so here it is the show is very clear both through dialogue and in examples like nowhere to run blind faith and even the wrong stuff it's his body that leaps sorry chris Winky face, <laughs> winky smiley face.
6: <laughs> Jeff,
9: a man by my own heart.
7: <laughs> Jeff's schooling me, I guess. Um,
9: <laughs> what a nice email. This whole thing I it love so nice. This. Yeah.
7: Thank you. Yeah, I kind of thought that it, this would send Matt into a bit of a tizzy. That's why I asked him to read the part about the date form <sighs> across the screen. And um, Allison, he's a MacGyver fan, like you.
9: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I just finished watching all of MacGyver for the first time, actually. So I'm I'm a newcomer to MacGyver. I uh, have not ventured into A-Team, though I hear Dean Stockwell was in an episode. So maybe <laughs> maybe I'll venture into that. But um, yeah, it's true, though. When you watch old episodes of shows, you got to kind of take in context the time. And a lot of times there are things that don't hold up. And that's true for MacGyver and, and Quantum Leap as well. But uh, but it's nice that you, when you watch something back, especially that you enjoyed as a kid, that when it, it really... Does still hold up because it's, that's not always the case.
7: <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I think we are exceedingly lucky in that Quantum Leap is exceedingly hold upable. Mm-hmm. And um, this podcast would be a chore otherwise because QL does really
8: stand the test of time yeah and we don't really like talking to each other so it would really be a chore having to come together (laughs) to record (laughs) this it's great that we fake it so well i'm I'm glad
9: i love talking to you guys i always look forward to it. the fact that we get to talk about quantum leaps just a bonus
8: and i i'm gonna go with (laughs) 1978 (laughs) 78 that sounds about right
9: Oh, you know, you when people ask if we're going to uh, talk about earlier episodes of the show, because uh, this has been asked a few times. All right, fine. They want us to talk about how the test was won. I get it. <laughs> Please. No. We need to at least cover that one. There's something some podcasters are better at than others, like having babies. <laughs>
7: Oh, oh my god and maybe that's we we should start doing road shows with the uh first what did we at the first two and a half seasons that we can do yeah when did we start
9: i think we have like half the show i think we started about the halfway point
7: yeah we started with i think another not another mother no, was, um
8: with hank runaway runaway yeah. thank you uh-huh. Pretty pretty much the exact halfway point
7: so i mean maybe we could work backwards from there and do them in reverse order
9: Go backwards and end at the pilot? Oh, my God. End
7: at the pilot, Yep, Take it from mirror image back to the pilot.
8: That'd be interesting.
7: What's the one before Runaway? What would we have to start with?
8: Uh, Rebel without a clue. Oh, no, a little miracle. A little miracle and then Rebel without a clue.
9: A little miracle. Oh, my God. Well, we haven't covered that one on the show (laughs) (laughs) extensively at all. I'm officially
7: saying that we skip a little miracle.
9: No, a little miracle needs a little more. (laughs) <laughs> i love a little miracle <laughs>
7: towards december we're gonna have i think what another hour added to that podcast if albie has his way i have washed my hands of it yeah
9: that'll be that'll be the start <laughs> right we add our own uh the three of us our opinions and then we insert that <laughs> into there and then we go backwards
8: through the show
7: I don't think there's enough service space in the world to accommodate continuing little miracle episodes.
8: But you guys, we actually started before the midway point. So Runaway is the midway point for Series 3, but since Series 1 is so short... Oh, right. Run- Runaways actually significantly before the... At- we're we're going to have done more than half the episodes by the time this is through. I have not realised that. Oh my gosh.
9: Continuing Albie and Heather's legacy.
8: Wow. Well, continuing Albie and
7: Heather's legacy is fine by me. I'm glad that Mm -hmm. we're in such good company. Thank you, Jeff, for the kind words. Thank you, Anthony, as well for your support. And if you out there listening would like to be like Jeff, there are many ways that you can reach us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can get us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantum leap podcast. You can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at quantum leap pod. And again, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. Just remember that we may use your response in an upcoming episode of the quantum leap podcast. And speaking of what's coming up next, Matt, tell us what's coming.
8: Well, I, I'm really excited to be talking to you guys about this one. Uh, I think it's going to prompt a lot of discussion it is the first part of a a trilogy of episodes um guys i'm struggling on the name of this one what is it
7: (laughs) i wish i could remember
8: (laughs) the imaginatively titled trilogy part one
7: the subtitle one little heart is that
8: what that one was called one little heart you take umbrage with that do you not matt i do it didn't <laughs> appear on screen it was a working title but yes trilogy part one
9: it's helpful to have a subtitle though i mean not that you know it's too hard to keep track of three
8: parts of it but <laughs> Actually, i wish they'd use the subtitles on screen they should have done but they didn't so. i'm a purist
9: well, after this uh, controversial episode, I'm glad we'll be getting into
8: some non-controversial stuff <laughs> with Trilogy. Yep, just your run-of-the-mill Quantum Leap. <laughs> uh, nothing bad to say about that. It's going to be a 10-minute recording.
7: Ooh. We're going to be getting deep into it, guys. Some more uncharted waters being uh, charted, I guess. Um, and yeah, I can't wait to get deep into it with both of you. Until then, I've been Christopher D. Philippus. I've been Alison Pregler.
8: And I've been Matt Dale.
2: Evil Matt Dale.
8: Evil Matt Dale being British as ever. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. (laughs) Bye-bye, darlings.
2: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge, Christopher D. Philippus and Hayden McQueenie are the co executive producers. Morgan Felden and Charles Alan Gossard are the producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television. And no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit baronspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap podcast is a baronspace production. <laughs>
9: Perfect. Delicious. Delicious. <laughs> if you just say delicious in a British voice, it's evil. Delicious.
8: It's pretty evil. Oh, Chris, you're a stubbly morsel.
9: <laughs> how how um how british written by american did it come off was it was it bad
8: no it's, it's uh, the thing is she pulls it off carolyn seymour manages it
9: because she's evil anyway so she could kind of manage some of that yeah yeah
8: i th- i think so there's there's definitely there's a bit of evil in all of us um there's definitely a bit of evil in her and she she <laughs> she, she can pull off those kind of cheesy lines and
9: even the non-cheesy lines. Of- Maybe they wrote it not thinking she was going to be British, so it didn't come off like constant colloquialisms. What a novel concept. It's
8: <laughs> just, everything she says is just oozes.
9: I remember from the interview, too, that she, uh, she had voice training to get her voice like that. That great, evil voice.
8: <laughs> Doof. 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 Doof.
7: Doof. Okay. Can you guys hear? Here it is. This is John
8: Di Aquino. Di Aquino. Okay, Di Aquino.
7: Don't be a kingo. Be a Aquino.
9: John Di Business dad with a cell phone on Baywatch.
7: <laughs> it sounded like you were saying. <laughs>
9: I wonder if anyone ever asked him about that. It'd be like, hey, remember on
7: Baywatch when you're a business dad with a cell phone? I'll <laughs> we'll get him on the mirror image, we'll ask him about it.
9: Yeah. <laughs> like, this is more important than mirror image. Please tell us about how on Baywatch you were too busy on your cell phone. To just pay attention to your son.
7: Did your son die? Did he drown? No,
9: he 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 didn't. He he saved him. And then he held him and he, he learned
7: what was really important. Oh, God. I'm so glad I haven't seen that. (laughs) I'm so glad you were my eyes on that one, Allison.
8: (laughs) (laughs) A puppy that you want to have sex with.